gonna give up, I'll call it quits I might as well just bleed out my wrists Before it's over, before I go There's one thing I want you to know The world's in trouble, it's under siege There's pirates out on the heavy seas But when I'm with you aboard my rocket canoe I have exactly just what I need This episode of Dopey is brought to you by Oro Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, out in Malibu and Silver Lake and somewhere in Western Los Angeles. It was created by our good friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission, to create a rehab that treats alcoholics and drug addicts with connection and compassion rather than control. They have decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They make sure your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is critical when kicking heroin or benzos or crack or really anything. They, everybody that I've ever known that's gone to Oro has only said amazing things. The people there are cool. The program is great. And the amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation yoga, equine therapy, and of course, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Sober Buddy. There is a free, 100% free new sober tracker down to the second available at yoursoberbuddy.com. Download the tracker and show your clean time with pride. It's awesome. I love Sober Buddy. They have sober challenges that make it easier to be sober and to stay sober. You basically have a sober support in your pocket at all times. If you don't know who Sober Buddy is, it's the little blue fluffy guy you might have seen in sober memes on Instagram or Facebook. Over 60,000 people have already used Sober Buddy to help get them sober. I'm using it right now. It's totally available in iTunes and Google Play. Get the free tracker down to the second 100% free at YourSoberBuddy.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our good friends at Dope. Dope is so delicious. It's an incredible company that makes ridiculously tasty cookie dough. Their dough is designed to either be baked into cookies or just eaten safely out of the container raw. So tasty. I cannot say enough good things about Dope. So delicious. They sent me the the OG chocolate chip cookie and the cookie monster. I had the brownie before. All of it is ridiculously good. Their dough also comes in pints like ice cream, uh, but they're filled with dough. Fucking amazing. 
I became aware of dope because I saw their founder, Kelsey, on Shark Tank, and she's an addict in recovery just like us, and she believes in ending the stigma around drug addiction and shining a spotlight on recovery. A portion of every delicious sale of dope is also donated to She Recovers, a nonprofit charity with a mission to connect, support, and empower women in or seeking recovery. Life is raw. Cookie dough helps. Use Dopey15 for 15% off at D-O-U-G-H-P com or find them in select stores nationwide if you're gonna get cookie dough if you're gonna get cookies get it from dope save 15 percent at d-o-u-g-h-p.com which is of course dope this episode of dopey is also brought to you by our great friends at evolution accounting and consulting they are a full service accounting firm that can help with your taxes your bookkeeping payroll and almost any other business need you may have Thanks to technology, they work with people from all over the country and pride themselves on building exceptionally strong relationships with their clients. They say that their passion allows you to pursue yours because they understand the stress caused by worrying about taxes and accounting issues. When you allow them to take this off your plate, you'll be freed up to focus on what you love to do. Perhaps even more important than anything else, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. Fortunately, he's been in recovery for years now and knows the struggle as well as the success. Use promo code DOPEY when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com to receive special discounts. All right, before we get to the show, I want to kick it over to my friend Ryan Hampton and his team at Mobilize Recovery. Mobilize Recovery is a great cause that's going national this September, and it's a project really close to my heart. It's a nonprofit organization and way for you to pitch in and help end overdose and addiction in America. There's a way for everyone to get involved. There is no cost and there is no hidden agenda. Mobilize Recovery is about you, your community, and what we can do together to inspire recovery solutions all across the United States. Here's Ryan. Hey everybody, this is Ryan Hampton, recovery advocate and founder of Mobilize Recovery. And I'm jumping on with Dopey today because we need you to help end overdose and addiction and inspire solutions for recovery across the United States. This September, the nonprofit initiative Mobilize Recovery is launching a national bus tour in partnership with iHeartMedia and Google, and we want to learn what your community, your organization, and your projects are doing to mobilize for change. Help us map the journey across the country. Learn more today at mobilizerecovery.org and submit your ideas to us. There's so many ways for you to get involved and to help us highlight the recovery experience that is so unique in different regions across all 50 states. Go to mobilizerecovery.org to learn more and to help us map this journey. And I hope we get to meet so many of you this coming September during National Recovery Month. That was Ryan Hampton. Support Mobilize Recovery. They're an amazing organization. And, you know, go to Patreon, support Dopey. A lot of good stuff coming on Patreon. A lot of good gear available in the Dopey store. Just go to www.dopeypodcast.com. Enough with the fucking ads. Here's the fucking show.
welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and other dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and I'm at my dad's apartment. And I'm joined by strung out author, elite equestrian, unlicensed advice columnist, and woman about town, Aaron Carr. I just like to say that you don't need a license to be an advice columnist. Well, you're, you're just, you don't have a license. I don't, do I don't. Does I anybody don't have, have one? Do you have a license to podcast? I'm an unlicensed <laughs> podcaster. It's true. But you are, I think it's funny that you're it an unlicensed. It is funny. Yeah. Because I'm not a therapist. And um, we have a lot of funny stuff, a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. We have a, a very improbable guest today, a very like outlaw artist from the Lower East Side named Clayton Patterson. Very interesting dude, very different sort of dopey story. And I, I, I had a funny Mother's Day story to tell, and I'm sure Erin had a bevy of funny uh, COVID-related tales <laughs> she wanted to share. But there's a crisis happening right now um, in the dopey nation, probably out mm -hmm. of the dopey nation, where it seems to me like there's a large population of people relapsing. I mean, it sounds that way, yeah. And... I have no judgment, first of all. I, I'm just scared. It's terrifying. I, I mean, you know I have no judgment. I relapsed constantly when I was using, and my, you know, before I got this long stretch of recovery, I was a chronic relapser. So I understand it, and it, it is terrifying because fentanyl was not in everything when I was relapsing. Right. Fentanyl is in everything, and even if, like, so, like, you're safer to relapse on weed or wine because there's probably no fentanyl in right. weed or wine or whites, um, whatever whites are. You know the song in Willin'? You know the song Willin'? Oh. He says, oh. just give me weed, whites, and wine, and you show me a sign, I'll be willing. It's a Wh little feet. Whites, whites are speed. It's, it's, yeah, I was going to say yeah. it must be some sort of pill upper, and, right? But they're probably yeah. putting fentanyl in whites these days, too. Um, the point is this, Okay. Um, forget about, I mean, I, I would take even the fentanyl out of the situation. Yeah. I'm talking about people that I know that were working a program, enjoying themselves, something happened, they relapsed and now they're not enjoying themselves. Right. So I'm talking about, yes, I don't want you guys to die, but I also want you guys to enjoy yourself. Yeah. Enjoyment is very important. It is. And, you know, I was telling, Dave and I were talking about this the other day, and I was talking about that, like, in 12-step programs, I remember a lot of people, like, sort of bouncing that idiom around, like, oh, my worst day sober is better than my best day using, and no, I mean, I had, there were some good times, you know, but by far, my worst day sober is is nothing like what my worst day using was. I right. mean, that's just, like, a hellish, it's, like, per, it's, like, rolling the rock up the hill, you know, like Sisyphus. And I'm not saying like, I, I was just talking to a friend who's in a relapse and, and, and struggling. And like, I have, as a drug addict, I'm like, well, are you having fun? How mm -hmm. is it? Kind mm -hmm. of like, I want to get that vicarious thing going. <laughs> right. Or also like, you know, like I'm pretty careful or, or I'm pretty deliberate if I'm going to have a guest on who's hardcore recovery or hardcore dopey. And we've done a bunch of like, you know, not a lot of hardcore recovery in a little while. And I love the dopey, but I hate the dopey in the face of relapse. And I even hate the dopey more in the face of death. Mm -hmm. It's like nobody needs to be dying over the dopey. Right. Like, and so I was talking to somebody and they were like, 
uh, I really enjoyed getting high like last night, but now I'm fucking miserable. Mm -hmm. And the truth is like if drugs sustain themselves, dopey wouldn't exist. You know what I mean? It's like if we were getting high, if Chris and I were getting high, we never would have made six episodes. We would have done like two and then gotten too high to do it again. Mm -hmm. You know, but if you can be a joyful, if you could be a long-term joyful addict, I go for it. I dare you. I dare you. I mean, that's always, that's always the thing that like, I think about like, you know, we wouldn't be sitting here if the drugs kept working. Right. And, and we used to get emails. Like I remember, I remember me and Chris did the show and there was an email from some dude who was like a 30 year heroin addict Mm -hmm. still using. Wow. And I'm sure there are people out there. So if you're out there in the dopey nation using successfully, enjoying your life, please (laughs) and write an email at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And I'll read the letter and get, uh, jealous and frustrated <laughs> at your success using drugs. But um, I just want to say this, like we're not, and Aaron especially, is not, I'm, I'm a member of a 12-step fellowship. I do 12-step work. It fucking makes my life much better. It, it, it's like awesome. And, and I had this thought a long time ago, and I think I shared it on the show, mm-hmm. but I definitely shared it at a meeting because I like to spit fire at meetings. <laughs> uh, it's like, and I, and I, you know, people give me shit when the show is too recovery centric, but like, I'm just throwing this out there. If you're struggling, the more stuff you're putting in front of using the better chance you have of not using. So what I see it as like, it's reverse strip poker. You want to fucking do as many things, especially if you're in a, I mean, this, you're the opposite of this, um, sort of, because like you don't work a program and I'm not chastising you right. you don't work a program you, you but you do other but stuff i was just gonna say i don't i'm not in a 12-step program but i do a lot on a daily basis to protect myself and to sustain recovery what do you do tell us about it well the number one thing is i take care of my mental health which means that for me it means horseback medic- riding well, giving it's, advice it's horseback riding it's that i have a psychiatrist who i meet with regularly and i am on medication for my mental health issues right it means that i have a therapist who i see weekly it means that i started doing um uh why can't i think what it's called (laughs) it's a form of trauma therapy oh that that emdr emdr wow that was like a brain moment it's bad that i know and you don't i know that's like a big problem i just wrote down better help on a piece of paper and i spelled it with one t yeah yeah so we're even okay i did that to make you feel better thank you you know i make sure that i when i'm in like real crisis i go back to like really basic level self-care stuff which is like getting outside listening to music water for me like this is might sound stupid but if i'm like having panic if i get in the shower or i just go put my hands under cold water it like cools down my nervous system there's a a list of a zillion things and certainly a hundred percent you know whether it's through the advice column or coming on here or corresponding with people who reach out to me being of service to other people which i know is also a tenant of 12-step programs is something that is like just part of my daily life because it helps me not be on drugs. Right. And all of, and also it makes your life better. You, yes. you enjoy your life more because yes. you do those things. And I think enjoying your life is another great deterrent from using a hundred percent. It doesn't it, mean I'm happy all the time, but I, in general, I'm very, I'm satisfied with my life. Yes. I always want more. I want more for my career, more for my life. But I'm like striving for those things. I have a full life. I have friends. I have 
you know, family, a husband, kids, All right, a you, don't, you don't need to brag about it. It's <laughs> like, oh, you can't help no, yourself. No, but I'm saying that I wouldn't have, like, I didn't think when I was using that any of that was possible. And now, like, 19 plus years later, like, my life is something that I never dreamed was possible. Right. And I, and I, I started this podcast with four months sober. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I started this podcast with four months sober talking about the worst things I had ever done with, with a friend who did the same thing. And I never thought I would get to this point in my life, you know, like basically six years and a few months later. Mm -hmm. And like, it's only from not using really. It's like, it's right. from doing all these good things, but it's also just from not using right. like, you just have to, if you want to not get fucked up on drugs, you have to not take drugs. And that's a very simple thing to, to do. And then you add all these good things. You know what I mean? Yes. You add good things. I, I, I feel like I'm not making any sense no, right now. I understand what you're saying. And I also just want to say that like, there are lots of paths to recovery. Recovery doesn't mean abstinence for every, everyone. There are a lot of people out there who find recovery through being on Suboxone for a length of time and then coming off of it or whatever. The, the point is, is that you're making steps toward recovering your life. And like that, that's something I think is really important because recovery doesn't look like just one thing. So if, if, if you however, however, though, I think this is interesting mm -hmm. because we do that shit on dopey and we say, let your freak flag fly, do what suits you. Mm -hmm. And then I was just talking to somebody who's relapsing and they were this hardcore 12 step person. Mm -hmm. And then they got into the kind of, I can do Dharma, I can do mm -hmm. uh, smart recovery, I can do whatever. And like now all of a sudden they don't want to hear. It's because they started using. It's because they started. I mean, the thing is, is that like all, any one of those things, whether it's Dharma, smart, whatever, like AA, whatever it is, Abstinence. is only going to work once they're ready for it, once they're ready for it to work. And they, I mean, look, the truth is, is that like, I, I think there, there is, there's some of it's fucking luck. Because I think that there, I know people who, I believe that they're, you know, that they really, really wanted it. And for whatever reason, the pull, like I had that so many times in my life when I was relapsing where like, I really, really like was, I felt like I was being pulled in two directions. And for, for whatever fucked reason, the pull of heroin just remained stronger until it didn't. And I don't know, you know, I think that sometimes there's a sort of like people inch their way towards being ready, even though they might really, really, really want it. It's not that they don't want it. They might inch their way there. But the problem is, is that you might fucking die before you get there. Well, so I hope you get there hold faster. On, hold on, though. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Like for me, I, I stopped using heroin and then I didn't really love being sober and mm -hmm. I missed smoking weed. And then I started smoking weed and... I had an opportunity to take benzos and mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I like benzos once in a while. And then I got a little bit of, I got some pill, like opiates, right. Vicodin, Percocet. I was like, oh, I like these too. And I kind of smoked weed every day and I took pills once a week or, mm -hmm. and I was like, I don't want to go back to heroin though. That's too much. And then I was like, I was getting a little bit of the opiate high and felt good. And I was like, and I did heroin again, but it wasn't good. So I didn't go back to that. Now, when you got off heroin, mm -hmm. and I'm sure we've talked about this mm -hmm. before, did you ever like be like, I want to just use pills now, or I just want to do crack, or I just want to like do something else in like as a, a maintenance dose. No, I mean, I don't know that that would have worked for me. Um, I, the last couple of years of my using, 
I was like nothing like it just didn't do what it did for me before. Like I, I, I wouldn't get the release that I was looking for no matter what it was. But this is my fear. My fear is that I'm hearing from people mm-hmm. who were hardcore heroin addicts, mm-hmm. hardcore crack addicts, mm-hmm. both. And then they hear about, you know, like fucking microdosing. They mm-hmm. hear about people who have a few drinks in their recovery. Right. They hear about people who smoke weed in their recovery and they're like, well, why can't I do it? And they try to do it mm-hmm. and then they're fucking smoking crack and right. shooting dope or smoking dope and smoking crack or whatever because they can't do it. Right. You know, and I think like I and I don't begrudge anybody's what anybody's recovery looks like. Right. I don't begrudge fucking anything or if you're using or whatever. Right. I'm just saying if you're a hardcore, if you're a heroin addict or a crack addict and I, I worry for those guys who are who are trying to smoke pot mm-hmm. or who are trying to take benzos or whatever. And I'm sure there's tons of you guys in the dopey nation who are smoking weed successfully. And I listen, I, I, I give you, you know, more power to you. Like, I, I applaud you. I'm a little bit jealous of you. I get ads from a Canadian fucking dispensary mm-hmm. on my email. And once in a while, I'll click on the ad just to see what's going on in the mm-hmm. world of cannabis. And, uh, and I, listen, if you guys are out there and enjoying it, I say, good for you. Yeah. I mean, look, and it's different. The the problem is, is is that it's going to be different for everybody. We're all, you know, there's not a one size fits all solution. And the, you know, I don't begrudge anyone, you know, experimenting with what they think is going to work for them. I know a lot of people who used and then later on went to smoke pot and it was fine, but I think it's a big risk. And you know, I hope that, uh, I just hope that the people who find themselves like relapsing onto their drug of choice and going down that rabbit hole again, that they don't die. Exactly. And, 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 and that you have a good life and that's enough of my preaching. Now I want to tell you, yes. And, and I know Aaron's going to keep preaching during this episode. <laughs> that's just, a, that's enough of my preaching. <laughs> um, I'm going to tell you my funny Mother's Day story. Okay. How was your Mother's Day? Happy Mother's Day. Thank you. My Mother's Day was okay. I didn't really do much. I My wish for every Mother's Day is to just be left alone. That's what every Mother's Day is. It's like so it fucked up. It's like every mother is just like, I want to go shopping today. I want to go to the spa. I want to pretend I don't have children yes, today. Yes, because we, we get to be moms every other day of the year. And like, so on Saturday we saw my in-laws so we could celebrate mother's day with my mother-in-law which is great you know she's really great about this every year she's like we'll celebrate mother's day on a different day that's not mother's day like we'll get together have dinner lunch whatever fantastic i love this plan because then on the actual day you know my husband will take over and and i mean i didn't get like the full day off but i had a few hours to myself so that was nice linda had no time off on mother's day but we woke up in a, in a, in a water slide park and, um, and she was really happy to wake. She said, according to Linda, she was very happy to wake up in a water slide park with her kids and me. And, uh, and we went in a big hot tub on mother's day and we went on water slides and got in the wave pool and Uh all this stuff. And I've been going there. I'm realizing for years, because I remember years ago talking about it on dopey. I think it was right after Chris had died. Or maybe, maybe Chris was, no, I think Chris was still alive Mm -hmm. the first time. And, um, I was sitting at the top of the slide looking at like a panel of lights Uh and just thinking like this could just be rehab. 
you know, those could be lights that I see, a panel of lights in a hospital. Right. But instead, I'm going to go down a water slide right. because I'm free. Um, and also, like, the water slide park is this place called Kalahari. It's this warehouse. And it's like, it could so easily be a hospital mm -hmm. or a jail right. or a fucking rehab because the hallways smell like rehab to me. <laughs> they the food all smells. Chloroxy. Like, yeah, or just like... <laughs> You know, it's like wet people, right. cleanser, yeah. fucking people, carpet, and, Ugh. you know, it's like that institutional smell. Do it you could, stay there, too? Is there a hotel? Yeah. Oh, you're, like, literally there. You don't leave. Right. You, we got there on Friday. We stayed till Sunday. Wow. Um, but we had a good time. That's good. And uh, except the fucking arcade. It's like a, the casino for children, yeah. and uh, and and Nora pulled some shenanigans. I'm not going to tell that story. Yeah, the story I'm going to tell is uh, we go home to uh, have have Mother's Day dinner with my mother-in-law, and I didn't get her anything for uh -huh. Mother's Day, and I like to get something for her for Mother's Day. So we get home from the trip, and uh, and we're going to have her and 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 Linda's dad over, and we we're going to cater it with Chinese food. Uh -huh. And so I order the Chinese food and I'm like, fuck, I forgot to get something for Linda's mom. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to tell her. I said to Linda, I was like, I'm just going to tell her I have something for you tomorrow. Right. You know? And Linda's like, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> Linda's like, I think you should go to the, go out and find something for her now. It's fucking six o'clock. Oh you know God. what I mean? On Sunday night, on Mother's Day. I Wait, was like, so you get her something separate? From like, Linda? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I know. I said, Linda, can I be on your present? Right. She said her present was too small. And it says, I love you, mom. All right. But if it's my present, you know she's getting on my fucking present. <laughs> anyway, so so I was like, I had a plan. I always have a, a uh -huh. you know, junkie kind of plan. My plan was to go to the supermarket, uh -huh. which we call Stop and Shop. And I was going to go to Stop and Shop. And they sell orchids mm -hmm. at Stop and Shop. And, and Linda's mother loves orchids. Okay. So I was like, I'm going to go buy an orchid at Stop and Shop. So we go to Stop and Shop. And, uh, or I go to stop and shop before I'm going to get the Chinese food and there's only one orchid and the orchid looks good, but the pot is cracked Ugh. and obviously all the orchids are sold out. Right. And the only reason no one bought that is because their mother don't, don't want to crack right. pot. Right. You know, I wouldn't have cared, but I know Linda's mom would not yeah. have liked the cracked pot. And so I'm looking around, I can't find anything. And then I remembered there were plants outside uh -huh. and I bought a basket of purple mini petunias that I thought looked great. I was like, this is going to be the ticket. And I go to stand in line and who is in the supermarket? Her mother. Linda's mother. <gasps> and she's laughing her head off. Because she watched you. Yeah, she sees me. <laughs> and um, and then for whatever reason, I decide to lie. Like, I don't lie. I like, I don't, this is like, I was talking about this at a meeting. Like, uh -huh. I don't lie. And it's part of the defense against the fucking first drink or mm -hmm. the dr I don't even drink. It would be the defense against using. It would be trying right. to work a program, trying to do the next right thing, not lying. Put the fucking shopping cart back. You know, I don't fucking play around because I, 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 I like think of stealing every time I'm at the supermarket. Like, I don't not think of stealing when I'm in the supermarket. I, I like I was thinking about stealing the plant, right. thinking about stealing the card, thinking about stealing a cake. Cause I like stealing. Okay. I've never, you know, I've never stolen anything from a store ever in my life. I've, I've stolen, I've, I've stolen a lot. I enjoy stealing. I know my dad doesn't like to hear that, but whatever. Anyway. So she sees me and she's laughing at me. And, um, and then I say to her, I said, Sue, I was honest at first. I said, Sue, this is your mother's day present, 
but I have another present waiting for you at the store, but the store was closed. It's like such a fucking bullshit junkie <laughs> story. Like that I tell her for no right. reason. Right. This is a perfectly good present. Right. This present is great. She's like, oh, that's really beautiful. And I was like, don't worry. Tomorrow I'm going to pick up the real present, you know? And I, and then the next morning I went to a meeting and I'm thinking, why, why am did I, you make up that lie? Why right. am I lying to my mother-in-law at this right. point? You know? So then I had the choice of either coming clean or going and buying a present at the store. Yeah. And I went and I bought the present at the store. Brought beautiful white orchids. Oh, nice. Double fantasy. Or I don't think they're really called double fantasy. I'm lying. Now I'm lying on dopey. <laughs> uh, they're like white on white fucking right. beautiful orchids. And, um, and she was happy. She got them. That's that. And she also, of course, took all the leftovers home from Mother's Day dinner <laughs> in classic Sioux fashion. Um, so we do, you know, we work with Sober Buddy. Yes. I work very closely with Sober Buddy these days, which is very exciting. We actually did an Instagram live yesterday. I caught a minute of it and then my phone rang. <laughs> I'm going to start doing dopey Instagram lives. What do you think about that? I think it's great. What do you think, Dopey Nation? If you want to watch a dopey Instagram live, write me an email at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And really gigantic things are coming for Dopey. So I hope everyone's fucking buckled in big time. <laughs> All right. Now we're going to do our Sober Buddy Challenge. You ready for the Sober Buddy Challenge? I'm ready. It's easy to get so busy. And, and Sober Buddy is an app. You get it at yoursoberbuddy.com. They now have a free tracker. Up to the second tracking. Anyway, it's easy to get. And this is the, the challenge, the Sober Buddy Challenge. It's easy to get so busy you neglect your social life. Creating a yearly friendship holiday is a great way to make time to get together. Some ideas. Annual Beach Day, Friend Appreciation Day, <laughs> or Triangle Day. Whatever you want to call it as long as you make it happen. And um, then they give you an article for creating friendship holidays. And I was talking to Erin about this. And she said, what is the ultimate friendship holiday? DopeyCon 3. DopeyCon 3. So who's, and my dad is, is, is his usual nervous wreck <laughs> of his self. He's like, I don't think anyone's going to come. I don't think they're going to come. And I think people are going to come. I think people will definitely come. Some potential guests include, like I said, Brandon Novak said he'd come. Mm -hmm. Fucking Amy Dresner said she'd come. Yep. Uh, Skinny Vinny said he'd come. Mm -hmm. Uh, Aaron Carr is going to come. Yes. Maybe Aaron Lee Carr will come. Yeah. Perhaps Peter Rosenberg will make an appearance. And and it will all be ca be catered by Katz's. Yay! Katz's Deli is going to be cutting pastrami, corned beef, brisket, and turkey. So this is going to be an... Ex and, we're, and we're looking at venues tomorrow. Mm -hmm. We will have a venue. There will be fucking hand-cut pastrami, crazy dopey, Fucking Riley Walker said he'd come and play a tune if he's in town. Maybe Ray Brown will come out of retirement, but I, I'm not counting on that. Some one. exclusive merch. I don't know. But I don't think so. Maybe. Really? Maybe we some. Have to have DopeyCon. We did. Merch. We did DopeyCon merch, and I still have some. If you want a DopeyCon T-shirt, it doesn't have to say DopeyCon. Write me an email. It's going to be special merch that you can buy at DopeyCon. Right. That's what I did yeah. at DopeyCon. All At right. DopeyCon 1, we had DopeyCon shirts. I figured we'd sell them like hotcakes. They don't have to say DopeyCon. We actually did sell a lot of them. Yeah. All right. So there will be exclusive DopeyCon 3 merch. You better fucking come. It is October 1st. It's going to be fun. Yeah, you'll see each other, whatever. It's going to be great. And um, Aaron was talking about things she does 
to avoid using and having a miserable life. And one of the things she talked about was therapy. Yes. And I do therapy too. And I actually did uh, online therapy today. And this episode of Dopey is actually brought to you by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, because BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. Sounds good to me. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Dopey listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Podcast. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Podcast. So listen, before you fucking use, I don't, I don't want to be Mr. Recovery. I'm not Captain Recovery. Right. However, I care about the people in the Dopey Nation. Yeah. I don't know how that happened, but I really care <laughs> about the audience. I love you guys. If you... I mean, and if you want to use like more power to you, but if you find that you're in a, a place that you don't want to be, please reach out, reach out to me, reach out to each other, go to a fucking meeting, get therapy, like do something like I was traumatized by the deaths in our community. Like I was traumatized by them. Yeah. Um, and I, it, it hurts me to this moment to think about, uh, Chris and Todd and, and, Colleen and Liam and Troy and um, what's his face? Fucking kid. Andrew and Dave Marshall. And I don't want, if you're out there relapsing, I don't want you to be the next name. Like when I hear about people relapsing, I'm like, fuck, they're going to fucking die. And then we have to do a whole thing on Dopey about them. Right. I'd much rather you get it together and we do a whole thing about you getting it together. Yeah. All right. So there's a man from the Lower East Side named Clayton Patterson and uh, I don't know. I thought he had an interesting story. Yes. I'm very excited to, to have people weigh in on what they thought. It's not like he's like a crazy drug addict, but he's totally crazy drug addict adjacent. Absolutely. So here we go. Clayton Patterson. Talk about God. You want to talk about God? We'll talk about God. Do you want to talk about God? We want to talk about God. God and dope. No. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave, and this is a treat for me. I'm on Essex Street. We're on the Dopey Mobile Unit. As everyone who listens to the show knows, I've been working at Katz's for 14 years. What they don't know is there's a lurking celebrity on the Lower East Side, uh, an underground art legend named Clayton Patterson, and he comes into Katz's all the time, and I'm like, who's that guy? And they're like, that's Clayton. And, uh, and I investigated a bit, and Clayton's a, a photographer, an artist, a designer, hat maker. Does that make you a haberdasher? I guess so, but it doesn't make me president. No, but welcome to Dopey. The one president was a haberdasher. Who is that? Uh, Truman, I believe. He was a hat maker? I believe so. I've always been intrigued to, to, to meet you and to talk to you, and I've talked to you randomly. I've said, hey, what's up, kind of like from afar as I carried matzo ball soup around Katz's. But... Um, what I knew about you was the pictures of dope bags. But I want to know the story of Clayton Patterson. All right. Well, first you started off making me very nervous. Why? Well, you have this uh, podcast called Dopey, and you have a treat. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, dope treats. You know, you meet a junkie, he says, hey, I got a treat for you. So yeah. you're, you're worried that the matzo ball soup might be souped up? <laughs> a treat. 
No, uh, thank you very much for the matzo ball soup. But uh, yeah, I've uh, documented the Lower East Side for many years. Um, one of my greatest blessings was doing the front door. Now you see, I've been underground for a long time, and with because of my front door, I don't speak Spanish, but I've done a lot, documented a lot of the uh, Hispanic community. And if I take my front door pictures, for example, because I got kids when they were going to PS20 across the street, six years old, and then they grow up. Some of them now have grandkids. But this is an inner city area. My area between Houston and Delancey was definitely uh, overlooked part of the Lower East Side and was definitely, without question, a dope haven. Coke and dope. This was the area. And so... Um, these kids grow up, and of course, because it's a front door, I put 32 pictures in the window, so it made these, a lot of street kids famous. When did you start putting pictures in the window? Mm, probably about 86, 87. And, it, and to say it was a dope neighborhood then is understating it, right? Oh, you know what I do? I ask people, who buys dope mostly? Who's the customer in Harlem that buys dope? And everybody will think for a couple of minutes, because they they're kind of have to step softly on this, and they'll say, well, black people. And I said, yeah, exactly right. Now, the reason I bring that up is if you look at the Lower East Side, the Lower East Side was accessible by bridges, by tunnels in and out of the city easily. And it was probably the largest commercial dope spot in the world. Because you're, you're not obstructed by being in Harlem, fear of being uptown, right. all that shit. You're, you're in two, two seconds, you're in the East Village. Then you're in right. proper villas, and you're downtown, and you're, you feel safe. Our Greenwich Village, sure. our Tribeca, our Wall Street. But back then, I remember, I remember Katz's didn't have stalls on the bathroom door because junkies would, would pass out in there. So they Yeah, it was definitely there, an abundance of junkies. But you remember the lemos that would come down here? All the, you'd have lemos parked down here, running in, getting drugs, coming out. So my, the point that I'm getting to is... All, there's almost no history of dope on the Lower East Side. And it, it's right beside Chinatown. It's right beside Little Italy. Where did the drugs come from that supplied the city? Eh, I don't know. I probably <laughs> guess uh, China and, uh, and, and, and Italian. Right. Oh, okay. Well, where's, where's the proximity to Little Italy and Chinatown? It's right across the street. So when did you come to the Lower East Side? I came here in 79. And that and punk rock was blowing up. CBs was happening, and, yeah. all, and, and heroin was embedded in that culture. Oh, at that time, heroin was cool. I think even like uh, uh, Soho News and that, there was a cool factor about heroin because people really didn't realize the addiction, and it was the same problem with Coke. But back to the front door, you have to realize a lot of these kids who I became, almost became a father figure to a lot of them because a lot of them didn't have uh, fathers or whatever, and by putting them in the window and making them famous, it was like really giving them love and attention. And I'm shocked. I, I've met people that just got out of jail for 20 years, and they come over here, and they get a hug and everything else because they remember that beautiful thing when they were a child of just the, the making them famous. But the point that I'm getting to is out of all of those, I've taken at least 10,000 different pictures in front of that door. So a lot of them, when they grew up, they became dope crews. They became uh, major dealers. So that's one avenue of you know, documentation en entry into the dope world. <clears throat> the other part that's completely uncovered is they have a dope bag history. I had a friend that was a bank robber. He was going to jail. So he had a mid eighties dope bag collection and he gave it to me. Now you see what 
I mean, it's so amazing on so many levels because you hear all of this business about, you know, we need to be able to spy more on these people. We, we, we need to get better equipment. We need to have better listening devices. We got to, you know, they got to soup it up like the, like the CIA. You want to know who sells dope in the, in, the, in, in the building? Go to the kid in grade one across the street and says, who sells dope in your building? It's like the bags were tagged. So you ask any junkie, where do you get Hellraiser? Stanton and Ludlow. Where's the mystery? There is no mystery to the dope world. If there was a mystery, they wouldn't be selling it. They had lineups down here, all that stuff. The one part that I find most interesting, well, most troubling, is <clears throat> when Cuomo the Elder got into power, upstate New York was dying. So what did he do to bring it back? He built prisons. Every small town in upstate New York got it a prison. It became huge, yeah. It became huge. And about a third of the prison population in New York State is from the Lower East Side. Now, we both know anybody who's a junkie is a dealer because he's the guy that goes down and picks up 10 bags or 10 bundles for so he can give to his friends. So he can get high for free. So he can get, yes, so he can get high for free. And I've known, in a certain way, it's, it's a deficit for white people. Because I've known a number of white people down here, for example, Richard Hamilton, who's a drop-dead junkie. If he had been thrown in jail for a year or two, he could have cleaned up and got healthy again, but he never did. So, And I've known so many people that are white that never got arrested, or if they did, got arrested, they got an overnight. Whereas these Spanish guys, some get 20, 30 years or more. So all of a sudden, all the people that are arrested and go to jail are black and Hispanic. But in this neighborhood, the population that was buying the drugs was mostly white. Right. And they never went to jail. So it's kind of like, mm, I don't know. Every time I ever got arrested with heroin down here, I, I would just, it turned into disorderly conduct and they'd let me go in the morning. That's right. Um, now, you weren't a drug user. No. Uh, what drew you first to the Lower East Side and then to this culture? Well, when I first got here to, uh, <clears throat> when Elsa, my wife, and I got to uh, New York, we... Uh, I was in, uh, we were living at uh, 325 Broom Street, same building as Keith Haring. He lived upstairs. He was an amazing kid. But uh, I was making it in the art world. I had a guy like Richard Brown Baker buy my art and like that. And it was just, I hated that world. You know, I think I had some stuff in the Brooklyn Museum. And this was like 1982. So what happened was, is that this end of town was really bad. bad. And so... Um, I just didn't like that world. It was all about competition and gossip and, oh, did you see what he does? Or he can't paint, but he can't. I just wasn't interested in that, that whole kind of social clamming. That I just wasn't me. So we moved over to Lower East Side. First night we were here, somebody got shot across the street. And we had 24-hour drugs outside the place. But I felt comfortable here. And then the other thing about taking all these kids the, in, in the front door, lot, most of them, 90% or more, were Hispanic. And I looked at them, and I thought, wow, you look like the kids that I grew up with. <laughs> so How's that? I just, well, you know, I come from the bad end of the working class. I grew up with all kinds of kids that looked just like them, kids that ended up going to jail or, you know, troubled families and homelessness. I left home between grade 9 and grade 10. So I was familiar with that culture, not the Spanish culture, but the, that youth poverty, culture. youth poverty, yeah, working poverty, class shit. Kind of, yeah, working class stuff. I get it. So actually, I worked for this Jewish landlord who I admired because he was a Holocaust survivor, 
And when he came here, he hooked up with two or three other people, and they bought buildings in the cheapest place in, New in Manhattan at that time, for them, downtown. That was the Bowery. So I became sort of the manager of his buildings. He had five buildings because uh, the whole idea was not to work, you know, not to have a job. You got to work to make money, but, you know, I could do the managing thing, which would be the hookup guy, finding a plumber, finding an electrician. And then uh, um, we had a, a, our tenement floor, which was a, a railroad, and we could sublet it for two years. But working for him, I realized that it was possible to come to uh, – two things happened. One, when I'd gone to school in Nova Scotia, and we took a weekend trip here. And that's when the Bowery was the Bowery. And all. So when I saw that, I knew I could live here. It was like a romance, and it was also like real. It's real New York City, and it feels like old New York City. You know, trash cans on fire, and William Burroughs is living down the street and all that. And it was accessible. Right. So by working for him, I realized, you know, because then I moved into a commercial space, and this guy was totally honest and right up front. He says, Clayton, you got to realize you have two years on, on the uh, to sublet, but after that, you, either you go back there or the rent in that loft where you have, which is 3,500 square feet, will just go up because it's a commercial space. And I knew we couldn't do it. So we spent a year and we bought a building. We bought a building on Essex. And at this time, you know, you couldn't give property away down here. I heard they were selling buildings for like a dollar if you beat the crackheads out. Or that was the, when I used to work at Katz's in the front, they would tell me stories like that, that like when it was so bad down here that people didn't, because they, the crime was so bad and the buildings were so infested right. with, with, you know, vermin and drugs and, right. you know, squatters and poverty that they were like giving away buildings. Is that is, how, how truthful is that? Uh, parts of that are true. And, you know, the copper pipes were missing and stuff like that. I think the person we bought it from, he was with the city. So I think he bought it for a lot less than I did. And, but they, um, was that this building? Yeah. Wow. But then, um, what he was charging was still within our range. But we went to 42 banks, and we couldn't get a mortgage. And then Elsa went up to the vice president of Citibank office, wanted to go to the president's office, got to the vice president and talked to the secretary. Cause, and by talking to the secretary, of course, it's like talking to uh, her people. To her people. And so they called that night, and we explained, because there was a, a, a sewing factory downstairs. So even though we didn't have a stable income, per se, the sewing factory was rent, and that was stable. And there was a wedding dress place in the front. So that, we got the mortgage. Amazing. So that was a time when you could kind of use your head. Figure some shit out. Figure some shit out and make it happen. People don't realize how much they've killed in New York. Well, I think people do. It's like, well, it's, know, it's, like it's a different place. You yeah, know? but you could haggle. When was the last time you haggled for prices in Manhattan? You I haggle as much as I can because it's in my blood to haggle. You know, I'm a haggler. I have to. It's like when I don't haggle, I'm disappointed with myself. Well, I'm a haggler too, but almost every time you go somewhere, that's the price. No shit. Yeah, I mean, you know, and also like, there's no choices. No. You know what I mean? Like, you if, go to Best Buy and you say, "Can I buy ten of those?" The same price. Right, right, right. I can haggle for an umbrella on the street. On the street. On the street. On the street. You can't haggle in a store. No. And you, before you go to, uh, let's say, um, they were selling suits on um, uh, what's his name, um, Sion Mizraki. He started off as a kid. I did a three-volume Jewish history book, which is a people's history. So he tells a story like when he was a kid, he worked for his father's store. So he, people would go in there, and his, his, what he had to do was sell suits, which were like 15 bucks. So it was a top, uh, uh, two pairs of pants, and a vest. 
So they say, well, okay, what about if I get rid of the vest? Okay, well, we can have it for $12. Well, what about one pair of pants? Okay, so I get the jacket and pants, 8 bucks. You got it. Nice. You can't do it anymore. You craft, you craft your deal. Yeah, New York was about deals. Everything was a deal. The parking meter. That parking meter doesn't work. You can park there all day. Everything was a deal. Good trash. You put the brown bag over the parking meter. That was my favorite. Yeah. You could... The school closes for the weekend, so you know after four on Friday till eight on or seven on Monday, you got the free parking. Well, the coolest you have to admit, like at Katz's, Katz's is run by guys who were the kids on the Lower East Side. Yeah, you know, for the most part. Fred so Dell, yeah, absolutely. And the, no, but the Dominican guys are oh, so plugged in yep. to this neighborhood, definitely. And like they still know how to do parking shit like that. They still make trades. Like there's still like it's a dying culture. There is an underground for certain things if you know the right people. There's a barter. There's an underground barter system. But you really got to be, you know, plugged in to get there. Yeah, I've been working at Cassis for 14 years, and I'm like. I have a, 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 a the t- like a toenail plugged in, and then if I think I do, I'm out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So one of the things is I was on Bourdain's uh, Parts Unknown, and how did he? And, and I hooked him up with a number of people to be on that show. So um, he put me on the show. And why did he come to me? You tell me, because because you're the I mean because you're the underground legend of this neighborhood. No, he called me the Godfather of Lower East Side documentary and the archivist of everything known or something. But anyway. It really was about, there was a dope bag called Toilet. And two things happened to him. He used to do a lot of heroin. So he came down here one day, and he was riding back uptown in a cab with four other people. And he heard this statistic, four out of five people that are junkies, four are going to die. And he thought, I don't want that to be me. And the second thing was Toilet. He had a bag of Toilet. And he thought, what am I doing shoving toilet into my veins? And that was his moment of clarity? That was his moment of clarity. And the other thing that people don't realize is all these people that are selling drugs are your pharmacists. You know, they have, some of them are uneducated. Some of them basically came off a farm and they're here in New York and they're selling dope on the street. People don't know what they're buying from those people. And dope is the kind of thing where it doesn't really give you the memory of whether... You know if this was better than last time or better. But you don't, you can't. It's, it's, it's not a, a hard litmus test for sure. Yeah, it's not a connoisseur drug. No, you can pretend it is. You can pretend, <laughs> you it, can is. pretend it is. Um, what was I going to say? Like, when did, you're a photographer. Yeah. Like, who were your early influences when you started? Well, I really started off as an artist. Almost everything I did, I did kind of out of necessity or it just sort of happened that way. That's how I got into cap making. You know, we eventually created the Clayton Cap. We were the first people to put embroidery going around the cap, first people to brand it on the outside, uh, first people to make custom hats for people. We did a lot of stuff. The industry was leaving New York in 1986, and we had basically run of that world until 1995. But um, all these outfits now, they have the, all the designs going around. Like, That's all us. But we're unknown in the fashion world because we were a little underground shop in Lower East Side. But we created that kind of change. It's amazing. Uh, you. So what was the first art that you were doing? Cat making was first? No, I was making sculpture and things. And, and then I got into printmaking. And printmaking is what got us to New York because I was a really good uh, lithographer and, uh, you know, fine art printmaker. And Elsa was really a good artist and knew all everything about printmaking. So we got down here because at that period of time, there's no reason to be in America because they had enough plumbers, they had enough cooks, they had enough of everybody. But when Reagan got into power, they made prints tax shelters. 
and so the the art world exploded with prints. Right. So we just fell into the right time, right place. But um, I got into photographing because, you know, I'm not really that social. I, I seem really social, but 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 I'm not. Well, you, you're it's you're very recognizable. Yeah. And you have been in the same spot for many many years, so that has to come with some sort of like necessary social socialness. Well, you know, if I went to an opening, I'd probably hang out for a few minutes to see what's up and then leave. Because I'm not going to go around and talk to everybody unless I know everybody. So the thing that the camera did was it gave me access to everywhere. You know, all of a sudden I got a reason to go to the Pyramid Club. I got a reason to get into the inside circle, let's say the, the basement, the dressing room of the Pyramid Club and take pictures of all of those people. You know, it got me into, like, I like to do something when I'm there. So when I go see bands, I'm taking pictures, it gives me something to do. Sure, it's also something that makes it so you don't have to talk to anybody. It's exactly. a it's a great skill. Like, I I'm not particularly socially. I mean, like I'm I'm like an introverted extrovert. Like I like talking to people, but like one person. Like I don't love like if I'm in a group of people, I don't really feel that comfortable to talk to the group. But as a waiter, your social skills are perfect. Yeah. Hey, how you doing? What's going on? First time in New York? Oh, that's cool. Oh, you ever tried mushroom or, uh, matzo ball soup before? Yeah, it's Jewish. You're in a Jewish place. What do you want? The best thing about waitering is that every every table leaves. <laughs> you know, that's the best part. Exactly. It's it's very you know it comes and it goes. Now, when you started shooting uh, the band scene, who were you shooting? Well, I, it everything took me to somewhere else. I didn't take myself there. So I got to the pyramid. I'm photographing. I'm photographing my front door. There's a drag queen around the corner called Peter Quaylop, who eventually changed his name to Sun PK, and he said, "Hey, would you like to, to document me getting dressed at the Pyramid Club for my drag show?" I thought, "Great, why not?" So I go to the Pyramid Club and I start um, photographing him. And the security at the at the uh, at the uh, Pyramid was the hardcore scene, like Ray Bees and and uh, Jimmy Gestapo, Murphy's Law, and Warzone. So they were like major players in the hardcore scene. Now all of a sudden I'm doing the hardcore scene. And then from the hardcore scene, I meet doing videos and photographs. I meet people in punk bands. And then I meet people like the Brain Eaters and you know, just a large litany of underground bands. You know, Gigi Allen, his last performance, his first performance when he got out of jail. What was he like? You wanna know what? I think it was a setup. What do you mean? When you met him privately, he was like a very nice guy. Elsa, my wife, really liked him because he was very just kind of... He was famous for like cutting himself and shitting and, and rubbing the shit into his cuts. And but stuff, what I right? say, it's a, it was a conspiracy in a sense. They doped him up with heroin and they fed him Jack Daniels and then they turned on the switch and he went nuts. Who's the they though? Isn't uh, he the uh, they? People in the band. Well, you know, right, right, right. I'm just saying that the way to really get him going is to crank him up. The way to crank him up is to give him dope and, and Jack Daniels. And then he'll, he just hits the nut zone. And he was nuts. And he was a big guy. He was like a bruiser. So all of a sudden, he would like crush a Coke can and throw it in the audience. I mean, he would shit on stage. He would just arbitrarily go out and punch people. So he's a, there's a movie out called Captured. And it's by uh, Dan Levin and Ben Solomon. And it's about Elsa and I. And Gigi Allen is in it. He, that's that's the day of his last uh, uh, performance, but you see, he died from heroin overdose, and you know, so he went out that night, fell in the rug, his nose bent over sideways because he passed out in the rug, and um, 
you know, that's that's how he ended up uh, being dead, you know, with a disfigured face and, uh, you know, dying late face down on the floor. Horrible. It was heroin. Did you know uh, the John Joseph and the Cro-Mags in them? I know John Joseph. <clears throat> I had him on the show. He was fucking... He was really, I thought it would impress him that I worked at Katz's, but I didn't know he was like this big vegan. <laughs> oh, yeah, you worked at the wrong place for yeah, him. He was not impressed. Oh, meat is murder. That's him. Yeah, for sure. So you work at an abattoir. You, you know, everything in there is dead. Exactly. So tell me, tell me more. I, I want to get to how you become the archivist of, of heroin, the archivist of the Lower East Side. Well, by being. You know, by doing, you see, heroin was really filtered through all, the whole culture. You know, the working culture, the creative culture, it was really everywhere. You know, you could go even to Orthodox bakeries down here, and the guy in the back of the sun or whatever was had a habit. Or something. Yeah, had a habit. So I would meet different people that were really amazing. And I just got pulled into it. Like, I've documented a lot of formication. That's when, like, uh, I used to have this one particular person who used to shoot up couple of people actually well more than that but um when they start shooting coke they'd all of a sudden start picking themselves and then they would think that there were bugs in their skin and they would pull out the uh, little pieces of skin and say you see that it's a worm it's a worm and you know that's a phenomena that people should be aware of that are that are dabbling in drugs that this can be an outcome <laughs> oh it is an outcome i know it is an outcome then you start seeing people with all kinds of little scabs Pog on their marks faces and shit, Pog yeah, marks sure. and things so I've documented a lot of that. I've documented a lot of people shooting up. Um, you know, I've documented people like, uh, you know, Richard Hamilton, the famous artist. So a lot of people, I like, I, you know, one thing that, that happened to me when I was five years old, I had to go to church. I hated going to church. <laughs> but uh, so what happened was they brought in these missionaries, and these missionaries had these films. And I remember they had this little black kid, like a baby, and he's black, right? Because I'm five years old, I see black. And then all of a sudden, he's all red because he's been cut up, and he's covered in blood. And then all of a sudden, they take certain things, and they go over the cut marks, and that's scarification, tattoo scarification, Africa, this whole thing. And they were chipping teeth, and they had the big snakeskin that went across Wait, the Wait, where was this? Oh, this was in uh, a fundamentalist Christian church wow. in Calgary, Alberta, where I'm from. But they have missionaries. And I saw that stuff, which is supposed to be paganism, and it's really awful, and we go, that's the devil in there. And I looked at that stuff, and I thought, wow, wow this stuff is great. Fascinating. Fascinating. And so I sort of got pulled into that, and sort of because of that. You what know, do you think about it was so fascinating? What, what aspect of that ritual really like, like turned you on, for lack of a better word? I guess, I mean, it wasn't scary, like, it, it should have been like a horror film, like, you know, when they're in high school, they show you drunk driving crashes or something. I just got really intrigued by it and thought, wow, this is really fascinating. And it's really fascinating that cultures would do something like that. It's so different from it's the so classic, different. like, whatever, American-Canadian, middle-class life. It's, no, it's the most different thing that you could imagine, really. And it's with adult supervision. Right. So it wasn't like a bunch of kids in Africa that were poking themselves with knives and scarring themselves. It was part of the tradition of the tribe, and with the adult supervision, 
it kind of took away some of the horror of the thing. Because the adults said it was okay. Well, yeah, because all these adults are there. It's okay. You know the kid's going to live, and you know that it's it, for them it's the right thing to do. So I was eased in by that. So, like, you were interested in the ritual of that. And then when you got here, it's the it's the it's a much different ritual. And there's still sort of adult supervision, but it's uh, it's I can see the similarity for sure. I'll tell you another thing. If people are into looking at art, if you look at Richard Hamilton's uh, um, gold paintings, his beautiful paintings done with gold leaf and with uh, the it looks they look like Turner paintings because there's like this black and these subtle sort of blacks that sort of tumble across the horizon. It looks like a skyscape. But that is blood. So the dark reds in that and the blacks are actually blood because he puts blood into the... Uh, into the paint. Into the paint. Into the varnish. But if you... L- next time when you see one of those paintings, I want you to look at it. Because if you look at the dope when, it first, when they first do the first plunge and then pull it back out... And then the blood comes back into the into the uh, the tube. All of a sudden, it just rolls across like a landscape. And I think that's what it is. I think it's a landscape of the drugs being pulled out in the syringe. And when I look at those paintings, I could just see it. That's that's very interesting. It's like I remember. I can't remember the movie, but like, and and it's there's something fucked up about this that like every drug addict probably was influenced by some movie or some song or some scene. And I, I don't remember the movie anymore, but it was some movie that showed injecting heroin when they first, what you're talking about, when they're first registering the blood and it comes into the, the clear syringe and it mixes with the drug. It is like, it's mind-blowing scientific. It's magic. It's like alchemy. It is magic. And, uh, and it's beautiful. It is beautiful. And it's like, see, I did you never did it. No. So break that down, because you're 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 drawn to how it looks. Right. You you see the beauty in it, because it is mind warpingly beautiful. It's like in it's, a way, it, it it's a weird, weird mystical science fictiony kind of thing. It is. I mean, there's a lot of magic attached to heroin. There's no question about that. And it's just you see that tumbling. I'm talking about. It's not beautiful that the fact that they're shooting up. And of that course. Part of it, but just the syringe part. When with the, the, the when liquid, the blood gets pulled when in, the blood gets pulled in, absolutely. And then, um, you know, I document. So then I run into creative people like this uh, woman, Ann Ardolino, and she was like a poet and things. But I also have documentation of the paranoia, like somebody shoots up, and then all of a sudden, this is with coke, and all of a sudden, it's, it's, there's rats. They're coming on me. They're all over me. Get them out of here. Get them out of here. And the guy two minutes ago was just sitting there normally. And she used to get it with all this whole conspiracies about the uh, the worms and the drugs and the fact that it comes from South America and you it know, all it all adds up really quick. It all adds up really quick. And then she'd you know maybe hide in cardboard boxes. It's a lot of stuff that I would be careful about making public because I don't want to make a farce out of it. I almost see it as scientific. I think some of the stuff with the pickings and things. You know, it, it really doctors and people like that or people that are interested in, in heroin should see that because it really is horrific. Well, it's a, it's a scary consequence. It's also it like uh, I, I went to art school and, and I studied photography and I was really interested in uh, in like the the, the New York, the, the street photography and, the you know, like Robert Frank and and. And, and Klein, you know, and, and all those guys in the 
You know what I'm talking about in the 40s yeah. and the 50s where, where they're, they're starting to do that street stuff. And and they're documenting, or, or Robert Frank in... in uh, Hucksucker Blues. Yeah, or in, in New Orleans, the Americans, that book. Like when they're documenting... Oh, the Americans, yeah. Beautiful book. Beautiful book. Uh, but they're documenting real life, and it's like, this is in Cocksucker Blues, right? He, he's documenting the Stones in the throes of this thing, right? You know, I didn't realize until recently there was one place down here that you could just go there and rent that because I was always told that, that someplace like the Whitney could only play it once a year because of a lawsuit, but it was floating around. But heroin, I think um, the other thing, if you see what happened down here is I did a book called uh, uh, with Cochise, uh, Jose Cuelas, uh, Street Gangs in the Lower East Side. It's the only street gang book in the Lower East Side. But what happened was is that you had street, uh, street gangs down here like the uh, Cato Nunchuckles, right? But what they did was they became a crew, a heroin crew. So all these street gangs, instead of being territorial about watching the neighborhood, one person, the other person like that, you know, my block, your block, that kind of thing, they turned into drug crews. Well, they made so much money they kind of had to, right? They, they had to, and then that's about bringing people in, not about keeping people out. So you're no longer defending the territory. You're bringing in as many people as you can. Right, and you're trying to build up territory, and you're trying to make profits You're at that point, right? It, it right. changes the whole dynamic from a street gang to a, a drug crew. But, you know, back to the, the Harlem thing again. I mean, you know, American Gangster, Mr. Untouchable, all of that. There's so many books and stories and and. and you know, different uh, uh, histories that could come out of the Lower East Side that have never been touched. The heroin thing down here, which I, my claim is really, it was bigger than Harlem. It had to have been because of the, the diversity and the access. And just the volume of drugs that were here. A lot of drugs that went from here went to Harlem. You had people down here like the Allen boys used to, used to deliver to the, the South Bronx and used to deliver to uh, uh, Spanish Harlem. When did you get into uh, documenting the bags? The which? The bags, the stamps. Oh, uh, that came from the uh, the bank robber giving me his collection. So tell us more about that story, because it seems very interesting to me. Well, for one thing, like back to the cops and spying and all of that, it's a map of the Lower East Side. The one thing is, you could ask any junkie. If we, if we found a junkie from back in the day and showed him the, the dope bag collection, he would say GQ, 10th and 1st. Uh, Hellraiser, Ludlow and Essex, uh, you know, seven up, third between, um, you know, A and B, uh, bag in a bag, seventh street, the laundromat. I mean, it's just, you could do a map. How many bags were in the collection? God, quite a number. I'm not sure exactly how many. I want to turn it into a book. I want to find a publisher that would be interested in that. You see, here's the other problem that I have. You know, I went underground for years. And by being underground and covering the stuff that I did, the com I was completely isolated from the mainstream and from sort of the, the art world hierarchy and all of those places. So I basically cut off all my avenues of access to people who could be helpful, like publishers and stuff like that. Because if you think about it, if I did that dope bag collection book, I'm sure I could get people that were dealers down here people that were in crews down here. I could get a view of the heroin trade down here that a lot of other people couldn't. Of course. Why, why do you think, like, because a lot, I mean, like, especially in that time frame, there were so many outsiders who were brought in, like a Jean-Michel Basquiat or something. Absolutely. Like, so why were you so like, I don't want to be a part of Soho. I don't want to be in that world. 
just because it was a social hierarchy. Like Keith Haring. Like, like I lived in the same building as Keith Haring. You know, Keith Haring is a, is a phenomenon. First of all, he was a goofy, nerdy kid from Pennsylvania and gay. You yeah. could tell he was gay. Yeah. So we know even if you're cool and even if you come from Long Island, being here a few times as a kid, it takes you at least a couple of years to get into a crowd and find some people and start to hang out. He did it immediately. Right. Part of it was SVA, and he, it was just magic. He hooked up with Basquiat at that time with uh, Kenny Sharp and uh, his whole little crew, and they shot up the ladder. His career was 10 years from beginning to death. To, the F, right. to death. And most people, the first three or four years, is just becoming used to New York and meeting people and finding a place to go. He did all of that in 10 years. Now, I'm going to tell you another story here in a second. So, but he was always a nice guy. And he never stopped working. There's a phenomenon that happens. Once people start to get famous, they become, I'm all that. And it takes a period of time before you realize I'm just another Joe Blow in the world, and I'm not all that. Right. But uh, he didn't hit that stage. He was always, you know, accessible to people, always generous. But he worked with a guy called um, L.A. 2. And if you look at it, this has been one of my campaigns was to try to get L.A. 2 recognized as Keith Haring's partner because he was. No, I've heard about this. I've heard about this from Ivan. Yes. And it's very important because if you go, you can go to you can go to a lot of museums, you can go to a lot of art collections and you could see the, the Whitney book, the Keith Haring book. If you look at that damn book, a bunch of those pieces in there are L.A. 2 and Keith Haring and they're all Keith Haring's. Right. Now, L.A. 2 deserves to be recognized as his partner because he was. He had some drug issue, right? Well, I'm just getting to that. So after Keith died, because he had worked off and on with Keith for years, almost his whole career. Keith dies. There's nothing in it for L.A. 2. He's just eviscerated. They cut his name out of everything. You know, I have like a, a I did a show here with a postcard. It was from a little booklet. Museum City of New York, Keith Haring. You look at the vase in the front, half of it's L.A. 2. L.A. 2 used to just write L.A. 2, TNS's crew, and sometimes L.A. Rock. So L.A. gets into steering when he's here. In other words, Keith dies. He's now kind of desperate. He's, he gets into uh, showing people where to buy A steer says, oh, you go down the block, you go in the brown What was he again. using? Uh, he was steering. So he got arrested and went to jail. So when he got out of jail, he's depressed. He met an older woman, and he married her. So after he married this older woman, he became stepfather to her son, who was the same age as him, and the son is Blue Boy. Oh, my God. And if you want to know who Blue Boy is, go to Vlad TV and watch it. Now, before, you see, I thought that people were intelligent, and I thought people would discover this. So that's another heroin. I mean, Blue Boy... Uh, murdered somebody, but he talked about, like if you go to Vlad TV, about the drugs on the Lower East Side, the heroin. He talks about all of that from an early 80s, 70s perspective. Blue Boy, because he, he, he spent most of his prison life in the box, solitary confinement. He's a very violent, dangerous person. He was one of the top three violent people in the New York State prison system. So he steps out of the box one day and says, I'm a crip. <laughs> what? What, are you kidding me? You know, there's a whole thing you got to go. Who says? You understand who says? Get him to come and tell me and tell me that I'm not. So, you know, but when I told that to die, he freaked. He starts jumping uh, up from his chair and he starts screaming at me. 
you got to leave. You're threatening me. You're threatening me. Why? And I, I don't know. It's, it's his imagination. And so. Who is Deitch? Uh, he was an art dealer. He's the guy that uh, ran Deitch. Uh, he did, and he was selling Keith Haring stuff. And, yeah, and, and it's like you were trying to, to tell the L.A. 2 story. Yeah, I thought he would have woken up and thought, oh, my God, we should do something about this. We should correct that book. Because if you think about it, when PhDs and people like that are learning to look at art, they learn to read the symbolism on the page. Right. And they'll all see this sort of like L.A. LA Rocks and whatever. L.A. Rocks. Right. And they will learn that as Keith Haring because that's what they're being taught, and it's a lie. But I'm sure that happens in every scene of art, like dating way back, that there's somebody that like was with Rembrandt. <laughs> Oh, we don't, yeah. we well, don't know who L.A. 2 for Rembrandt was or but, something. But in the Renaissance, yes, different people would paint the hands, right. different people would right. paint the faces. Right. But this is his art. This is his signature. And he's still alive. And he's still alive. But with L.A. 2, the difference from another artist working, like let's say uh, Kostabi, Mark Kostabi had other painters paint his paintings. But L.A. 2 only did his own art. So there's no mystery to it. So I thought these people would eventually... Real, oh, I paid $200,000 for this painting. It's a Keith Haring. Actually, it's a collaboration. I didn't know that. I want my money back. Or, but it's also, I mean, this is a fucked up opportunistic look at it. It's also an opportunity for someone to mine LA2 as this lost 80s legend. But you have to, you know, you know from doing the podcast, it's not that easy to get out there and to break into the larger market. And you really have to have somebody, you know, sort of, um, you know, managing and marketing you because it doesn't happen on its own. I don't care how cool you are or how smart you are or what genius work you're doing. If you don't have somebody else translate that to the larger public, it ain't going to get there. Right. You need your art dealer. You need your art dealer or, or presenter or, or manager or whatever it is. You it need seems like L.A. 2, though, is an un, unmined fucking gem. It's a movie. Right. If somebody wanted to make a movie, that's it. What was his oh, drug, Oh, also, though? Blue Boy. Yeah, what's the, I don't even know. Blue Boy was a dealer and a violent criminal? No, no, no. He was, uh, when he was an early teenager, somebody stepped on his sneakers on purpose, and he shot the guy and killed him at a big community gathering. So he went to jail for that. But the other thing about Blue Boy is he's the guy in jail that killed Larry Davis. Wow. Larry Davis is the, comp, is, is the, the dealer in New York, that his how he got off, he beat the charges because it got proven he was working with the police. But he shot six cops, and he got away with it. But they get him on another murder, and then he went to jail. And then, but in jail, if you you know, he stabbed and killed Larry Davis, American gangster, uh, you know, a, a hero in the black community for shooting six cops and escaping. It's a deep, deep, deep history, huh? Yeah. Well, that's the one thing about knowing the history of a neighborhood and really documenting it. You can put together the roots. Most people get the surface. Heroin Lower East Side, famous bag, uh, body bag, 10 people died, a Kennedy kid came down here and used this drug. But that's just the surface thing. If you want to know the whole culture of the thing, it's like being an anthropologist. It is totally, the, it is cultural anthropology it's of like, heroin on the Lower East Side yeah. or Cruz or, I mean, like, I just think you as an archivist of the Lower East Side is an incredible thing. And uh, you have to do the dope bag book. You have to. I got it. But, but, you know, people think of me as, you know, I'm, people call me a legend or whatever. And on the Lower East Side, I guess in a certain way I am. I mean, I've definitely had enough public things, like with the police riot tape and all of that. 
you know, I got tell the audience about that. Okay, on August 6, 1988, I did a videotape which became known as the Tompkins Square Park Police Riot. Uh, I was three hours and 33 minutes long. I got six cops criminally indicted. Then people say to me, well, they all got off. I said, yeah, they all got off, but find out how many uh, police brutality cases where the cop actually got criminally charged. Not very many. So that was a big stick with, with me. And it also changed how, and then I, I went on Oprah Winfrey, held up the camera, Little Brother's watching Big Brother. I changed the idea of the use of technology to document police actions and protests. There was now a handheld, affordable, accessible camera that people could use. So that opened that whole door. And so it gave some sort of power to somebody that wasn't on top of them. Like Absolutely. It, and you became not only an artist, but and an archivist, but an activist. Oh, a big-time activist. And, um, you know, if you go through all the... This was a big case, and I got six cops criminally indicted. You got to know, I wasn't like the best... You know, I wasn't the NYPD poster boy, guarantee. I was hated by many. But if you go through the history of that period, or any of the, the Rodney King, uh, almost any of the famous cases that were national, Tompkins Square was national, the video person is unknown. I'm one of the only people that stayed in the game and kept on doing it. I have an amazing archive of the protests and of gentrification on the Lower East Side. I documented that with Elsa, my wife. She was my backbone. But I did it with just sort of gusto and determination. Yeah, I got arrested a bunch of times, got knocked unconscious, had teeth knocked out. Uh, you know, I paid a price for it. But I had, at that time, the determination and the drive to do it. And now, like... Where do you fit into the neighborhood? Like, are the cops happy to see you? Do you see the 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 people that were on the on the door, on the on the front front door when you, they were kids? Do they come by? Well, two two answers. With the cops, the one thing that happened because this went on for a few years, cops that were smart understood that I was documenting them. Cops that were morons were thinking I was the enemy, and their game was to get me. Well, those are probably the shitty fucking cops. Those are the shitty cops, that's right. But the intelligent cops realized that this was history and it was important. And I wasn't there just to sandbag them. And that you're part of the neighborhood. And I'm part of the neighborhood. And I'm part of the game. And the other thing that people don't realize is, you know, the heroin thing, as you know, has its whole very diverse subculture attached to it. Protesting and police have the same thing. And when you do it over and over and over again... People become familiar. It becomes like war in a way. And then after the war, the generals from America talk to the generals in Vietnam. You know... Um, there's negotiations. There's negotiation that takes place. Or there's memories that take place where all of a sudden maybe the two top generals, you know, 10 years after the thing... Like one of the cops that I knew that was really intelligent, this guy called Michael Julian, and we, we became, you know, acquaintances. You could say friends, you know, I don't go drinking at his house for Christmas or anything like that. But, you know, we talked to each other. He moved to Australia. He'd call me when he gets here, that kind of thing. And he became a deputy commissioner. And the smart cops got it. They also got that I was protecting them because if they had a real asshole in, in their group, they're not going to say, hey, Clayton, you got to watch that guy. I'm going to know you got to watch that guy. And if he gets taken out because of some documentation that goes to CCRB or whatever, that can be a bonus for them because the really out-of-control nut job compromises their job. Because once It's dangerous to have somebody like that. Yeah, and once you're a white shirt, what people don't realize about the police department is it's political. Here, hold up one second. Okay. So, uh, Julian, I had a lot of fights with the cops. My first big fight with Julian was 
there was a guy there called Officer Kid. And I told him, I said, he's a bad guy, he's a troublemaker, and he's going to give you problems. And Julian's thinking, I'm an asshole. You know, hey, you're oh, the troublemaker. Oh, yeah, I'm the troublemaker. You're the shithead. I'm not going to listen to you. Get out of here. Kid went to uh, um, California for Christmas holiday, and he got picked up on something like rape or something really bad. Horrible, right. Really horrible. So all of a sudden, Julian sort of looked at me <laughs> after he sort of scratched his head and thought, oh, okay. It's not just he hates the police. He hates things were not going correctly because you have to have a defense system for the neighborhood. It's a must. Well, a good police, a good police is a good neighborhood. You know, a good police is somebody who like knows the kids that are on your door, knows yeah, who knows, you right, are. Right, right. You know, I mean, like, there's something, <laughs> there's something not great. It's like heroin dealing isn't the problem. It's violence around heroin dealing and 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 crime around heroin addiction the dealing isn't really the issue it's all the other stuff yeah if somebody asked me what's bad about heroin i would say the addiction i would say not knowing the chemistry of the bags that you're getting because you have no proof of content the other thing that's really dangerous is if you take a break and you go to the hospital for you know a few days you can uh you come back you use you die yeah the other thing is is how it affects your body, like when you mix it with Coke and other things, the formication and the picking yourself. I mean, I think if a person got pharmaceutical uh, heroin and could manage it, they probably wouldn't have a lot of the, the same problems. Well, I mean, that's I mean, like, lots of experts talk about treating heroin addiction with legal heroin. What's well, a lot better than than, uh, than uh, um, methadone, methadone or Suboxone or whatever? It's very hard to get off methadone. I was on methadone for. Seven years, six how, years. How long did it take you to get off? Like, uh, I mean, the whole time I was trying to get off, but uh, I, I wound up kicking really slowly over the course of a year. I was there in, you go. It's I, usually about a year. I was in L.A., and I was coming home. That was right before I started working at Katz's. My mom okay. got leukemia. I was oh. in Los Angeles, and oh. I didn't want her to die while I was out there. Right. So I kicked real slowly, and then I came back off method. But it can easily take a year. It took me a year or longer. I mean, heroin could take you ten days. Right. It's not the or this, or this the fent the fentanyl kick sounds oh. like the worst thing in the world. Is it right? What you want to be is stabilized, and then you want to be reduced. But then the real thing is like, are you ready? Are you willing? Are you ready? You're able if you're willing and you're ready. Right. And actually, if you watch Captured uh, uh, by Ben uh, Solomon and Dan Levin, you'll see there's a guy in there called Al Miller. Now, I, doc uh, I uh, documented Al a lot. I watched his teeth degrade because a lot of times people, junkies, eat a lot of sugar, and his teeth eventually just rotted out of his mouth. I kind of have that problem. Yeah, he came over here, and he would uh, shoot up or sniff, and he would uh, you know, look at his watch and say, okay, it's going to be this many minutes before this sniff hits me, and I'll tell you if it's any good or not. Uh, he would tell me where he got the bag. I went out to his place. Um, in Brooklyn, where he lived, he had a whole set up with an altar and everything. See, that's the other thing with heroin. The ritual. Is the ritual. The ritual is a big part of it. And the other thing that gets twisted in here, there's a number of streams that go through heroin. Black magic is another one. And so, Al, Al <laughs> this is a funny story. Not funny, but... Um, interesting. Interesting. So, Al is gay, but he doesn't say he's gay. So, he's, his brother's living with him, who's obviously not his brother. So... <laughs> They're both heroin addicts, and Al wanted to be a heroin addict, by the way. He said, when, I'm a, when I reach middle age, then I'm going to become a heroin guy, and he did. 
So one day his, his brother went to the hospital for about 10 days, got out, shot up, died. So Al, he lived in a building with an elevator. Al dragged his brother into the hallway, put him in the elevator, <laughs> pushed down, <laughs> and left him in the elevator. Wow. And somehow, this is back in the old days. People came, picked him up in an ambulance, whatever, took him away and died. That was it. No big investigation. <laughs> they just find the dead body in the elevator, and that's the end of it. Yeah, I remember when that guy got shot across the street here when, the, when we first moved here. You know, a couple of cops come, they hung out, they pick him up in, uh, in an ambulance, and he's gone, and that's it. It isn't like you see on TV. I lived uh, on Norfolk between Stanton and Rivington in, uh, I want to say, 1996. Wow. Okay. And uh, in the in the lobby, there was a drug crew and they were selling dope out of there. And I wasn't using dope. You know, I was like smoking weed and whatever. Right. Uh, and they were really nice guys. <laughs> you know what I mean? Really nice fucking drug dealers in, in the building. But just go ahead. And no. And, and like they made me feel safe. Like yeah. they were happy. They knew we paid rent. They yeah. were cool to us. You know what I mean? Like if they you weren't bothering them. They're just more guys. And it was more like it was more like Katz's guys were like, if you come right. in every day. They're happy to see you right. because they know who you are right. and you're happy to see them. And that's community. Um, at what point since you've been here, you know, how many years? How many years have you been here? Well, since 1979. So, you know, 83 It's 2023. I don't know. I'm not good at math. It's like 40 years. It's like basically. 40 years. So have you obviously it's not the same place, right? It's not like it is not dangerous like it was oh that's where you're mistaken talk to me you know in certain ways it's more dangerous okay and i'll tell you why when you lived here on norfolk street even though some of those guys might have been bad guys and thugs and dangerous and whatever it wasn't dangerous to you no i felt protected you felt protected they would tell us if like there was some like if someone was giving us a ticket or anything yeah. was happening somebody's breaking the car yeah. you don't want them on the block right. you don't want the cops there nowadays They've gotten rid of all the corner guys. So what you have are these roving bands from other neighborhoods that come down here and rob people and steal and do whatever. And so, like Delancey Street now, the, the K2 is the big one down here. Now the K2, like if you, you know, I documented one guy with, one day with, with the K2 and said, oh yeah, it keeps me even, it keeps me straight. That's that synthetic weed, whatever? Yeah. Okay. And, um, but if it's mixed with another drug or it's not mixed properly, I mean, there's people jumping on cars. The Chinese girl that got murdered over there and stabbed and, and so many times, and the craziness that was involved with that was K2. Right. And that Christie Park just below Delancey, between Delancey and Broome, that's like K2 heaven. And the other thing is, is that up and down, especially Delancey Street, it's like there's a lot of stabbings. and. <coughs> yeah, Delancey is not what it used to be, for no. sure. It's not like the crossing Delancey days, for sure. That's right. And when you were on Norfolk Street, if you went around the corner after you lived there for a year or two, you know, none of those dealers would bother you, even though you're a white guy on the street, because you know who they are. They know who you are. Nobody bothers anybody. And the other thing that's really uh, detrimental or really tragic for me it's a lot of those people really are just nice, good people. Totally. They're just really, they're not bad people. They're, they're neighborhood not, people. They're just neighborhood people. It's like the LA2 with the steering. They just, th it was the only real business that was down here. So a lot of these kids got pulled into it because it was a business. And uh, it was a way to make easy money. Al's game was credit cards. He'd go out and steal credit cards. or What he would do is go through the newspaper and see the people that died, and he would look for a doctor or somebody like that, and then he would apply for a credit card under that person's name. 
and then he'd get the credit card, and then he'd go over to the guys, you know, selling dope, and say, okay, well, I'll buy you some sneakers, buy you some gold chains, I'll trade you, you know, product for product. And that's the barter, the and great barter system. The great barter system. Well, and so, but we're, you're saying that maybe the neighborhood isn't, it's dangerous in a different way. In a, in a, it's dangerous in a different way. And, uh, but heroin has definitely been pushed out, like, is, or has it not? I don't know, what are you smoking? Me, nothing, thank God. The reason I tell you that or ask you that is the system has changed. Okay. I mean, now it's deliveries and things. Last time I got heroin on the Lower East Side, I had somebody delivering it to me. And, yeah. and I had a guy in a project on Water Street. Right. You know, like, and, and, I, and I remember one of my relapses, I was with a friend of mine who actually wound up dying. And uh, he was like, you can't get dope anymore. And I was like, I promise you, if I go to Avenue D, I can get dope. And we went to Avenue D and I got dope. Right. But, but it wasn't Norfolk Street. <laughs> No, but probably if you lived on Norfolk Street and you had the telephone number, you could probably get it. And Coke yeah. and all that for sure. Right. I mean, there's a lot of drugs down here still. You just don't. It's see not the same. It's not. But you were also here in the days of the bucket and the hole in the wall, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and the stories like Ann would tell me, like, you know, you know, she knew that they were going to get busted on Norfolk Street or on um, uh, First Street, that, uh, Seven Up. So the guy called Franco ran it. So she ran over and told Franco, look, you got to get out of here. The cops are coming, whatever. So somehow she, had, she stopped the cop, hopped, hopped in a cab, and took him off the block and around the neighborhood. So she basically saved him, and he didn't cut her any kind of deal after that. You'd think that he had flipped her some drugs, but no. Fucked up. Fucked up. And the, see, the other problem with the heroin really was, or any of the drugs, the coke, even, I'll get to pot in a minute. But was that um, people didn't know what to do with the money. You see, it's like we were talking before about getting something published. you got to know a publisher. When you get your radio show going, you have to have somebody that can market it and get it out there. And with, if you make a lot of money, money's useless unless you can use it. And that's why you have mil millions of dollars under somebody's bed. I mean, some of these guys are making $60,000 on a night on a weekend down here with the, with the amount of the volume of drugs they were selling. It was huge. And they're addicted to the money, too. And they're addicted to the money, but they couldn't do anything with the money. Because it's all, it's not, well, I mean, they could do a little bit with it, but you can't buy a house or something. Well, you could buy a house, but they didn't buy a house. They didn't think about it. Oh, okay, what do I do with my money? I'm going to buy a house. Right. You know, they, di they didn't have the... The dream. The dream, the dream or mechanism. Or was the fun. economic skills or knowledge. Right. So they just were good at gathering the money. They needed really a money manager once they had it. Most of them didn't have that. But we just skipped the pot for a minute. Pot was dangerous down here. I mean, I know a number of people that got murdered on pot because the, the money in pot was as big as it was in heroin at that time. And so it wasn't as big a charge. If you got caught, you're not going to get 20 years. But It's still a charge, though. Like Mickey the Pope, he was on 10th. And this is an interesting story. He was on 10th between uh, Avenue B between 10th and 11th. And Mickey the Pope is the guy that did the first major marijuana delivery system. Uh, he'd been in Amsterdam before. He's the guy that brought pot above ground in Amsterdam because he used to go to all the clubs and sell it, like Milky Way. There was a number of clubs over there. And so he got the distribution above ground going. He had a boat where he used to sell pot over. And then he got shot in Amsterdam, so he got thrown out of the country. So he came back here. He's on B between 11, 10th and 11th, and the hitman tried to extort him for money because he was making good money, and it was a drug block. And he just said, piss off. So they went over and shot him five times, 
and he survived. <laughs> he was a big fat guy. He said it was like it was like oil coming out of his skin. Right. And then he came back back on the block. Now the interesting thing is, in documenting the neighborhood, I eventually got to who shot him. I knew one of the kids that shot him, and so um, I talked to him about that. But before Mickey died, I wanted to take him up to introduce him to Mickey, but he just was, wasn't into it. I thought, you know, that whole Catholic thing, forgiveness. Uh, sure, uh, redemption, you know, redemption, yes. all of that. But he wasn't into that. Uh, big murder around the corner here. With, uh, there was a kid, a very famous skater at the time, that was, um, they used to sell hair, uh, uh, pot in that building. And they, uh, they had like 125 pounds of pot in a, in a trunk. And there was over two floors. And so, um, just, I just had his name a second ago. People in, in skating would know it. Jeremy Henderson. Okay. Because he would be on the cover of Thrasher and like that. So what happened is he got all wrapped up. They came in. They busted into the place. Cause they, see, the one difference between heroin and pot was heroin, they're paranoid and they're on point. You got a guy at the door. You got well a guy Also, heroin is small. Like the amount of heroin is tiny and weed is pounds and it's fucking pounds. couch cushions and shit. But with weed, it's like... The door's ringing. Who's at the door? Oh, oh, let him in. Right, you right, know, It's right. just casual. So these guys from the neighborhood went upstairs, opened the door, and put a gun through the door, and the guy upstairs and shot and killed him. And it really freaked uh, Jeremy out. After that, because he was also the distributor there. The guy upstairs had it, and then he was like the guy. All the skaters came to and everything. He sold good weed. I smoked weed. but uh, You don't smoke weed anymore? Well, I... You know, I find weed to be an addiction like cigarettes. You know, I could quit alcohol even though I'm drinking a lot, whatever, because I know the damage it does to me. But with pot, it's so sneaky and so easy to do. And then once I start smoking it, it's like cigarettes. I'm back. Got kicked out of AA because they didn't want to hear about pot. So I thought, screw you, and I left. But anyway. They're willing to hear more about it now. Well, this was about two weeks ago. No way. You went to AA two weeks ago, and they picked you out for, they kicked you out for talking about bud? Well, what happened is I went, th- I went there for like a year and a half. And I Where'd you go? Uh, a place called... Okay. And so one of the things that... One day I started talking about pot as an addiction. One girl rolled her eyes, and that really pissed me off, and I brought that up. And then the last time was a guy, you know, they had these after talks and things, and the guy said, look, Clayton, I come here for alcohol, and alcohol is my thing, and I'm sorry that you, you're addicted to this or maybe, you know, crunches you or whatever but you know i'm not here to hear what i got to say i'm here about alcohol so i thought okay fine and i left but uh, for me it's an addiction are you still smoking i'm not how long have you not smoked for uh about four or five days that's amazing i'm addicted to weed too are you i i was i i was i i smoked weed every day from like age 17 to age like 39 or something How, how hard was it for you to get off well, in the end, I had kicked methadone, and I kicked heroin, and I kicked Xanax, and I kicked Clonopin, and I didn't want to stop smoking weed. Right. I really loved weed. I loved my whole identity. And it's good for you. I loved everything about it. I loved how it smelled, how it looked, how it put it in my nose, everything about it. Yeah. Um, in the end, I found that I was negotiating shit to smoke that yeah. I that just didn't make any sense. No, absolutely. And and I and I and and I had heard so many times, like I never drank, like I was never a drinker, and 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 oh I don't God. talk about being an AA, uh, but I'm an AA. But I went because I remember when I was in rehab for heroin and for methadone, they would talk about obsession being lifted, 
and I was obsessed with getting my wife back and I was obsessed with getting my daughter back and I was obsessed with with pot like being a stoner I wanted to be a stoner it is obsession and and I did 12 step shit to have the obsession be lifted well, you're lucky because the other thing is it clouds your thinking. You start realizing you're you're just missing a step. It's it's kind of like I sort of put it. You have a bag of coal on your back with a hole in it, and it's just sort of like you're, 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 as the coal drops out, that's kind of your opportunities and things drop out because you just miss steps. Right, you miss stuff. You miss stuff you, all over the place. You miss stuff all over the place because like, but I think that also has to do with the actual time you take to smoke, and then the time where you're actually high. And those are the moments where the things fall out of the bag. It's like yeah. when you're not smoking and you're not high, you're still like as a creative person, you're like about this, 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 and this. And then maybe you get high and you chill and then you go back to the creative stuff. Without the bud, you get this little area of follow through between the creating and the the sleeping. You know what I mean? And after a while, it's not that creating. No, that's the thing. I mean, I had this yeah. moment the other day. Yeah. And I, I haven't been able to explain this. And maybe you're going to help me. Mm-hmm. Like, I think about Bud all the time. Especially, like, it's everywhere now in this different way. It's like, uh, you know, there's nuggets all over the place. <laughs> you just look look oh. at, you know. I mean, it's not like it was. No. You know, it, it's like, and they're big, huge prints of beautiful Bud and stuff. And the other thing was the hunt. Right, that was exciting. There was always a hunt to get weed. It was fun, too. It but was like innocuous. It wasn't like the hunt to get heroin. Right. I like the hunt to get heroin, too, but the hunt to get bud was fun. So tell me more about what you were saying. Okay, so I had this thought. I was, I was actually driving to an AA meeting, and I was thinking about how much I liked smoking pot. Right. And I liked, I liked the ritual of that, too. I liked getting bud and coming home and, and like cleaning my bong and icing it up and taking a bong hit and, and, and the excitement before it, right? right, right, right. And then I kind of thought about the promise of smoking, uh, of like packing the bong right. and smoking. And right. then the promise is kind of unfulfilled. Beca- you know <laughs> always, what I'm saying? Always. Like you have this moment that you think it's going to be amazing yes. and then maybe for a second it is but yeah. then every other second afterwards is a diminishment from the promise of something great we well, see that's when i started to, to drink more because i would drink to, to boost up the high right that was one of the reasons it was hard to get up alcohol because the pot after a while doesn't very seldom does it give you that really great high and it can't last and it can't last nothing can last nothing can but last. So, but sobriety at least you can i mean it, it's it's consistent you know sobriety is better It's consistent and it's like I have a much as a fucking total heroin addict and and pill head and pothead and all those things. My life really gets worse like in those (laughs) situations, even if I'm just smoking weed every day, my life gets worse with with sobriety. There's a lot of opportunity for it to get better and and nothing's going to ruin me like except me. Right. And I like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you another pot story, please. So, well, God, there's a few of them. I appreciate, though, you being candid about that. And, like, I know a shitload of meetings uh, that would you could talk about it. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I mean, there's no shame in it for me. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, that's one of my addictions. That was an addiction that I had, and that's the way it is. And I'm not working in the corporate world, and I don't really give a shit. And it was nothing did anything really criminal or anything. But there's a lot of crime attached to pot. And so, like, a friend of mine, uh, Charles Kritzke, he was on Fifth Street. 
and uh, people knew that he had this uh, pot coming in, and they ended up, uh, he got murdered for it because he wouldn't give it up. It was like $60,000 and $90,000, which, you know, back in those days was a lot of money. And then the other thing that happened, I had this guy over here, this uh, friend that, he worked with this, uh, with this woman, this um, Linda Twig. She was like, uh, ran gambling, and I can mention her name now because she's dead. And there's nothing about this story that's attached to her that can bring anybody else into harm. But uh, part of the reason I mention it is because she should be a book. All of this stuff should be a book. I would, I know a lot of outlaw culture from the Lower East Side. And if people, you know, you want to meet uh, Patty Smith, don't come to me. You know, she's got a manager, you know, but the people I know are much more outlaw culture. And um, so what happened is she was a big pot dealer. So one day she got to have this much younger boyfriend. And so uh, he came over to me, he's sweating it. And says, Clayton, you gotta help me out because Linda was going nuts at this time. There were heroin dealers upstairs. This was on first between first and second. And the guys that ran the block were upstairs from her, but she was this, you know, white woman that, you know, had gambling in the, Kel in the Chelsea Hotel. You know, I'm sure they're worried about being mobbed up or something like that. So they wouldn't just go down there and blast her, right? too high profile. So he came to me and said, Clayton, you gotta help me out here. So I knew the guy, so they had, there was a t-shirt guy over here by the, with a guy called Eddie. Now Eddie ran that place. I used to buy weed from him years ago when he used to be on uh, Allen Street. So I went over and talked to him and he played me slick. I said, hey look, this thing with Linda is gonna get out of control, it's dangerous and it's crazy and her boyfriend is really worried about it so i said hey look so he gave me a big bud and i said look i'll talk to some people so this guy plays me eh, it's no big deal don't worry about it we got it totally out of control you know you're hyping it up relax so the next day and i think this was dirty these cops came in and raided the place and what happened first is they were going to do a big deal on pot i think it was another one of these sixty thousand dollar deals right so they had the pot there and the cop says, okay, the customer, let's call him the customer, said, okay, we're going to go outside and get the money. So they go outside, and they come rushing back in with their guns out and stuff like that. So Dave, the young nervous kid, shot and killed a cop. Mm. Now I'm thinking, wow, he didn't seem to have a bulletproof vest on. I've, I've done, that's the other thing I've done down here. I've documented a lot of raids because TNT used to park over here. They called them TNT because it was Tuesday and Thursday. That's when they That's always so showed funny. up. That's so funny. And they used to show up like at 4 o'clock. So Elsa and I would be waiting here in the store, and we'd see the cops leave, and they were always, because it's between Delancey and House, and it was an area we could run to, and we got a lot of drug busts. And so he shot and killed the cop. But I'm thinking there was no big St. Patrick's Day funeral. They rented the place out to her for Why a do you suppose that was? I suspect within that culture he was probably doing the wrong thing. Right, right. Probably he wasn't. He, he was like a fucked up cop in some kind yeah, of Yeah, it probably wasn't registered. It probably wasn't part of the agenda for the day. Right, he was doing something else. He was doing something else. I think he was coming out of the 9th. He wasn't from the 7th where TNT and those places come out of. He was probably doing something else. So, you know, nobody said anything bad, but just the, the tokens around it, like the fact that there was no big uh, Fifth Avenue St. Patrick's Day parade or, or uh, uh, funeral. Funeral. The other thing that happened was that um, 
there was a TV show that was shot. They, they put a wreath above on the fire escape. And so the wreath is there. I have a photograph of that somewhere. But in the first couple of months, maybe within the first three months, they shot a TV show in there. And I'm thinking, out of the thousands or hundreds of thousands of storefronts that you could run a TV show out of, why would the cops allow them to get a permit to go to that place? Because you have to go to the police department to get a permit. So why would they do that? Usually that would be sacred ground. You know, be get out of here. You can't be here. You can't have this here. You got to leave. But they gave permission anyway. To shoot a stinky old TV show. That's weird. It's that's what I thought. That's I thought that. How 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 much of a fan were you of uh, Ouija, that old crime photographer? Oh, Ouija's a genius. So you love that stuff. I love Ouija. Yeah, because I love photography. I love looking at. I don't care whose photographs they are. You know, I love photography. I mean. Uh, you know, uh, Richard Avedon, the women's from the 50s. I think it was a big mistake when he went out west because when he did that western series, all those people looking are looking at the camera and thinking, why are you taking my picture? There's just something weird about this. You know, they all have this scared look, you know, like he caught deer in the headlights. But his fashion show photographs oh, yeah, of like women. Oh, beautiful. And then the other guy from uh, the Times that used to shoot the women on 57th Street, what was his name? Not McDougal. Um, I'll think of it. But he, uh, I loved his photographs. And, the you know, the people, that, the news photographers, I love their work. I love, uh, you know, just so much of that kind of photography that um, I Life. love photography. It's New York City, too. It's New like you're capturing, you're capturing inside a frame all this life, all yeah. this magic. It's, it's incredible. Right. It we incredible. have to figure out, like, what the fuck we're supposed to do now. You have, like, this crazy archive. You have this really deep, burning ambition and desire to get it out. Yeah. I mean, I have painting. I have my, my wife, Elsa's a great painting. We have the history of the cast, the history of the dope bags. I have a lot of documentation in the neighborhood, you know, photographs, videos of, you know, drugs, poetry, art. Mostly underground stuff. But, um, yeah, I need to be discovered by somebody who can do something with it. I wish I could discover you. I wish I could discover myself. Well, there you go. <laughs> but, Clayton, I can't thank you for your time. It's, it's been amazing. It's very nice to finally meet you and sit down with you. I, I really appreciate you doing that. All right, that was Clayton Patterson. And I've, 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 if I, I think I made it clear. I've seen him come in and out of Katz's for the past 15 years, and everyone's like, oh, shit, it's Clayton. Yeah, I mean, I knew him just as, like, the hat, like, he made those hats. <laughs> How did you even know about the hats, though? I, because there's a lot, there were a lot of articles and things that I read about him. He was in, like, a lot of fashion magazines. Really? Yeah. So you were like, oh, Clayton Patterson, I know him. In a vague way. I didn't, there were a lot of things that I didn't know. Like, I didn't know about the that insane dope bag collection which i like am dying to see <laughs> i know like it, i we were we recorded that in his storefront ah. on essex street but it's old new york i mean and yeah. when i say old new york it's like it's a storefront it's like a storefront with tiles and and then like you go to the next room uh -huh. and it's one of these lofts that's just full of his art in boxes compiled wow. all this art and then there's a little kitchen uh -huh. and then i think there's some rooms off of it but it's like totally i used to get drugs from this uh printmaker on uh green street who was an artist also he was a, a printmaker and a professor at brooklyn college and we called him the professor and his place looked just like <laughs> it was like it's so similar 
That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I didn't know about like the fact that that was his footage during the 88 Tompkins um, Square Park riots. Right. Like that's, he really, the thing that I liked so much about it was that he has been documenting a certain like time and space occupying and documenting this like time and space in New York that doesn't really exist anymore. And is certainly entwined with like drug history in New York, like a hundred percent. Yeah. And he is that, I mean, like it's like, uh, when I got to Katz's right in, uh, 2008, I want to say I'd been in California for many, many years and New York had really changed from, you know, the late nineties to, mm-hmm. to 2008. And what I loved about Katz's more than anything is it reminded me of the New York that I had grown up in. Right. And it was really mostly because of the Dominican guys that I work yeah. with all came from, you know, Brooklyn or the projects or whatever. And like, there was an old school vibe to that. And I grew up in public housing, right. Very adjacent to the projects. And I remember there was this kid that I worked with named Jeffrey and he wore this purple t-shirt that had a, a font that said, I missed the old New York in New York times font. Uh-huh. And I was like, Oh man. And Clayton is old New York. And, Absolutely. And Katz is old New York. Yeah. I mean, you know, my dad moved to New York when I was like, eight years old, like around eight years old. And I mean, the New York that like I grew up coming to on a regular basis to see my dad every year was not the New York that we have now. And like some of the things that like the, some of the only things that still exist are institutions like Katz's, Zabar's. <laughs> There's like certain things that we would do when I was a kid that are still there. Um, Russ and daughters. Yeah. I was just going to say Russ and daughters. And then like big things like parks. Yes. And like the New York Times still exists, but for how long? And Broadway still exists, but mm-hmm. Times Square, like my dad was just complaining that he walks down the street and there's too much weed in the air and it gives him a headache. Oh, well, there's definitely a lot of weed in the air in New York now. I live right near Washington Square Park and it is just like, poof. Yeah, it's robustly full of weed. Yeah. And people are also saying that post-COVID, like you, it's like not the old New York, it's pre-old New York, New York <laughs> right now because it's like so fucking... Like businesses are, are closed. You know, there's more crime. I know you don't like to say this for some reason. It's not but that. But you walk down the street, businesses are fucking closed. Yes. Well, my neighborhood is pretty. Much That's because of NYU. Because yeah. those businesses like have population. Yeah, but also like new restaurants have opened up and stuff. Like I feel like my neighborhood feels normal. Like right now it feels By like. By Katz's, most everything is closed. I and believe if you it. Walk, Midtown is really close decimated and if you walk from here to cats is you're gonna walk past you know dead spot after dead spot there's definitely like sixth avenue which is not far from me like down in the village like there's a lot of closed businesses there um yeah i mean it's different but it's not like this doesn't feel like new york in the 80s um not to me but i mean I, i think i told you the story i know i told the story on dopey where i was walking to work and uh some woman, pregnant woman came up to me crying in the street because someone had just spit in her face in Union oh, Square. You did tell me that. And like, like sh- there's like fucking shit going there's, on. I will say that I feel like there's been an uptick in like that kind of stuff where somebody just like goes off on somebody for no reason. I've been much more. And because of that, I've been like much more just sort of, I'm just really conscious of people. I, I <laughs> in my life have a tendency to like, 
be in situations where like there's somebody who maybe has mental health issues and is is volatile and I'm pretty good at de-escalating stuff like that but it's that's risky you know yeah I don't recommend that to anyone in the no, doping I nation <laughs> I don't recommend that at all <laughs> my husband doesn't recommend especially, that for me especially especially at this point I know. at this time in in New York like Penn Station <clears throat> is like fucking just I, I don't know I I I'm finding there's more more madness but it's also I'm also finding that it's de-escalating now like like 6 months later but it's warm who knows I'm like a old old Jewish guy, yeah. so like I I know to be cautious, and yeah. I and you're a little bit too footloose and fancy free out there. I it's think, not and it's interesting and, though because no, we're the I'm, same age. I'm pretty, I guess like I'm pretty like I know how to like fight if I have to, right? I don't want to. I really don't want to. You're not gonna fucking fight against I, some homeless man I who's understand. like fucking. Too, you're, you're gonna fight? What are you gonna I, do? Do judo? No, 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 what no, are you no, gonna no. do? I I just mean in terms of like. I don't know how to describe I it. I think that you're making me nervous. You better not, fucking not be de-escalating. Listen, I don't go stick my nose in things. You're not a I'm, fight? What do you mean? If some crazy person pulls a knife out of no. this thing, what are you going to do? No, I'm not going to fight somebody with a knife. That's, that was the wrong thing to say. That what what fighting say. are you trained in? I'm not trained in any fighting, but I definitely have that thing like in fight or flight. I'm fight. Yeah, I'm like my I'm adre- my adrenaline takes over when I've been mugged. I physically fought with the people and scratched them. And like both cases, they got caught because like one guy got his wallet. He took my purse, but I took his wallet. I mean, like I'm not like I go. It's not a good trait. I'm not saying this is a good thing, but that like if somebody like physically harms me i don't i don't like i go into fight mode well now i'm worried um <laughs> let's let's get let's move on to some emails here because i i don't want to see you fighting with some crazy no, person i'm not i'm not going to i promise and i'm what i just said is that i'm much more conscious Fucking right aaron's now. like picking fights in the street i don't pick fights. he's like and yo I, he's like that's your jacket i think that's my jacket nine times out of ten like listen there are people i don't make eye contact with because i know if you make eye contact with them it's not going to be good yo let me hold your walk man i ain't going to take it <laughs> but i also know that if you are confronted with something a lot of times there are people that just want somebody to listen to them and like valid like give them a word of validation you're, you're scaring the shit out of me okay? all right all right all right here we go wait i had one more thing to say what what else do you have to say now you're making me nervous. you're gonna fight homeless people no i'm listen there's no fighting i'm not talking about fighting homeless people stop okay, okay. don't put okay. people are gonna think, i'm worried i'm just right. worried uh, I just wanted to say the other thing that stood out to me in your interview is that you discussed haggling. <laughs> and we had this discussion the other day. I'm a terrible haggler. Terrible. You can call me Marvin Hagler because yeah. I'm fucking haggling. Yes. I don't yes. give a fuck. I love haggling. I know. I admire it. I'm just not a haggler. I don't haggle as much as I would like. Yeah. If, I, if it was a perfect world, I'd, like what Clayton said, I'd be haggling, for, I'd be haggling at Kalahari. Right. I would love, I would, and, and things are very overpriced at Kalahari. Yeah, I'm sure. All right, here we go. Do you want to, okay, do you want to hear the person checking my Benadryl use or do you want to hear the person that mentions you? Mentions me. Okay. <laughs> uh, hey, Dave, please don't use my full name. Maybe don't even use my first name. All right. I'm an alcoholic and sex addict. And I started listening to Dopey after you crushed on Marin. Keep up the amazing work. I live in the East Village, grew up near the city and have lived in New York City for a while. I don't fight with homeless people because I know that's crazy. 
that's so weird. Oh, that is really No, weird. it doesn't really say that. Oh. <laughs> uh, I love hearing about your local antics and anecdotes. I think about Dopey every time I walk my dog by Katz's, which is often. I deeply appreciate how inclusive you are regarding all addictions on Dopey. Sex addiction is extremely isolating and stigmatized and frankly has taken many of us to some very dark places. Mm -hmm. It is perhaps the least socially accepted of the addictions. The rise of the internet porn, webcam, social media, personal, personals, websites, etc., have blown like a tidal wave over a multitude of those susceptible to compulsive sexual behavior and provided an easily accessible escape that feels like an epidemic. Imagine if your dope was on your phone, computer, TV, etc. The story of all who find themselves addicted to substances or compulsive behaviors is the same. A need to fill a spiritual void or cope with all that overwhelms us in our lives, which evolves into a dependence and clinical or sorry cyclical cyclical <laughs> downward spiral it is a little less isolating for you to include sex addiction and i highly recommend you find and prod some real perverts to come on dopey amen there are some bizarre and very special examples of insanity within sex addiction that are classic dopey all jokes aside for many sex addicts their compulsive behaviors it's funny that she says they're not our mm -hmm. <laughs> um, have clear victims and there aren't any laughs in the stories of their acting out. The betrayal inherent in compulsive sexual behavior has destroyed many marriages and left many partners devastated and families ruptured. Voyeurs have traumatized people. Those who have committed sexual abuse have seriously hurt people and devastated lives. Those who engage with sex workers contribute to a system that is often dangerous and ripe with intimidation and violence. Sometimes I don't know how to find the way to overcome the shame and hurt my addiction has caused. How can sex addicts find freedom from their shame in a society that really doesn't accept them? And when is it when it is shame that is often a foundational element in the development of the addiction in the first place? I really don't know how this cycle can be relieved. I am in no way making excuses for wrong done and hurt caused. There are personal and legal restrictions that are important and necessary for many people and any victims and potential victims must be given any safety that can be afforded them and people who have hurt people must have serious consequences. I'd be, unbelievab I'd be unbelievably grateful if this ever came up in a segment of Ask Aaron. Oh. Aaron Carr has been an amazing an insightful addition to the show, even though she finds a need to humble brag and fight <laughs> homeless people from time to time. Sorry. That she wasn't say, in no, there. No. Uh, Dave, you're very special, hilarious, quirky, and a great interviewer. Despite any financial goals you have for Dopey, it is an incredible gift of service to all in recovery, and I'm very grateful to have found it. Take care and toodles for Chris. Q. So can we do this as our first Ask Aaron? Sure. Or yeah. only Ask Aaron because sure. we're going to run out of time. <laughs> Every time we record, I bring a handful of printed Ask Aaron's, and I bring the same ones every time because we never get to them. Well, there's room. There's right, still all time. Right, all right. So what do you have to say about this? This is a plea for all sex addicts. Yeah. I mean, so was there an actual question or just um, talking about like reducing stigma for people with sex addiction? There was a question here. Uh, how can sex addicts find freedom from mm -hmm. their shame in a society sure. that really doesn't accept them? And when it is 
shame that is often a foundational element in the development of the addiction in the first place. I really don't know how this this cycle can be relieved. So really, how can this cycle okay. be relieved? So I mean, I think, I think the same way that it's relieved with anything that's highly stigmatized. I mean, I've said, I don't know if I, I don't, I don't think I said this in my book, but I say this often <laughs> is that, you know, there's that, uh, quote like trauma being the gateway drug like my gateway drug was shame like a hundred percent my gateway drug was shame and that shame came from being sexually abused and then you know certainly compulsive sexual behavior was part of my addiction I mean I acted out not just I mean around like sex and romantic relationships in general like that and that was something that didn't, you know, completely disappear when I stopped using drugs. I had to sort of like work on like the way that I sabotaged my intimate relationships. How did you, how did you get through it? I mean, for me, it was talk therapy, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy so that the things that were triggering me to want to act out, I found like I learned like coping mechanisms you know, which are the similar things that we do for things that trigger us to use drugs, right? So you find coping mechanisms that instead of immediately going and acting out, you do this other thing. Right. So it's very similar. It's very similar. And I think as far as the shame goes, like I was just telling Dave before we started recording today that I had like my most recent Amazon review was like somebody like basically just like that they didn't like my book because I had had too too much much sex. sex. And there isn't even that much sex in my book. That book is wall to wall titillation. That's like, it's like reading a penthouse forum. I just need to be clear about this. Totally not. So buy, uh, buy strung out and like, (laughs) holy shit. That is one juicy read. Titillating read. It's not. And there's nothing. It's It's just guy after guy, position after position. It's not explicit, whatever. So this person said, oh, I couldn't fit like all her sexual partners into three of my lifetimes. Right. Shaming you. Yeah. So. I mean, I just, like, I don't feel shame about that stuff anymore because what the fuck am I going to do about it now? I think that you can get to a certain, I think for me, getting rid of that shame was becoming very honest about it. And obviously not everybody has to become honest about it in as public of a way as I did. But I think that being honest with it, whether it's with, if you're working a 12 step program with a sponsor or if it's with a therapist or it's with your best friend, I think that just being honest about it is, it feels scary, but then like what? I mean, like somebody's going to like, I, I, if you put all your so un, so-called skeletons from the closet, like out in the open, nobody can hold anything over your head anymore. What are they going to say? Oh, you were a junkie. Oh, you fucked people. It's like, like whatever. It's like Eminem at the end of eight mile when he, when he rhymes about all the, the uh, ammunition that the other crew will have about him. Right. Well, and, 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 and the great cliche in 12-step um, is we are only as sick as your secrets. Yeah. So if you have secrets, they fester. You know, and, and shame festers, secret festers, talk to people, listen to people. Yeah. You're not alone. You're not the only one. No, and I think that, like, over time that shame dissipates. The more that you are able to sort of, like, accept it, because we're not just one thing, like, your sex addiction doesn't define you. You are more than your sex addiction. You are like, I don't know who this person is, but they're, Q. you know, Q is, yeah, right. So like they have like their friendships or their interests or their their relationships, their family, their friends, whatever. There's all these other things that define them. They're not just one thing. Somebody can be like 
like a, you know, like thousand dollar a day junkie and also a really good friend. I mean, like, like I'm not saying that like people when they're in active addiction are, are in the best place to be a friend. But what I'm saying is that we're not just one thing. It's not a black and white issue. We are, you can hold more than one truth at the same time. And the thing that I say to people when they ask me if I have shame about X, Y, Z anymore is that like I carried that shame for a long fucking time and I'm done. And like, if somebody else wants to, if somebody else thinks I should feel ashamed of it and they want So you don't feel ashamed about anything? Not anymore. I mean, do I regret things? Like, would I go back and do them differently? Yes. But it doesn't serve me to be, why? Like I, I already went through the shame about them. Like, do I feel shitty that I bought drugs off of a 12 year old? Fuck. Yes. I feel shitty about that. But like, I don't feel shame about it anymore. I was, a, I was addicted to heroin and crack and in a very, very sick place and part of a whole ecosystem of drug user and seller that is, is connected to other systemic issues. That doesn't relieve me of responsibility, but it doesn't do me any good to continue to feel shame about it because I've accepted that I did it. Right. And it's also, I think there's a, a real danger for people who get addicted to their shame. Yeah. That's why get, I'm saying that was my first drug. I was, it was right. It was so scary that I had to like feel it and like live it. It's and your precious, it. it's your precious thing. Yeah. And then, and then, so you have this precious thing that you're protecting and that you're also medicating. So you need to like talk to people, give up the shame, give yourself a break, Fucking ask Aaron, write us, write, where do they write you, Aaron? They can write me at askaaronaarencar.com. They can DM me. They can, whatever they can, you can email dopeypodcast at gmail.com. But I just want to say one more quick thing is that the other thing is that anybody who wants you to carry that shame, that says so much more about their character than it does about yours. Fuck them. That's what I have to say. All right. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a tear. Now, before we go, I got a really short voicemail okay. I like I like to play voicemails right. on the show let's hear it so we got a really short voicemail from our friend in Kansas okay okay um Josh I think his name is here we go hi Dave my name is Josh uh people call me Smitty I'm from Kansas um I found you guys by accident on Prime Music and then I ended up listening to you on Spotify and uh, that's where I met Chris is at the very beginning. Um, it was really hard to hear what happened to him. I kind of became attached to the way you guys work together. Um, so now I can't wait for the new episodes to come out every week. But here's a quick story. Um, I was living in Kansas City and I went down to the projects to score a crack rock and this black guy came out with um, just kind of trotting out to my truck like he looked it just was funny to me because he looked so graceful like this guy really knows what he's doing he came trotting up to my truck and I rolled down the window and I held out my hand he said what do you want I said a 20 and he dropped it in my hand and I gave him a $20 bill and drove off I looked down after I got a couple blocks away couldn't wait to load it in the pipe and it was a penny dude threw a penny in my hand <laughs> So I gave up for the day that day and I went home, but anyway, it, it's a quick and funny one. Stay strong, Duppy Nation. Toodles for Chris. All right. Thank you, Josh. Uh, and, and just in the future, if you're recording a, 
Adobe voicemail. Do it when the tractor is turned off or the motorboat. <laughs> the combine. Is, the motorboat is not running or the motorcycle. But I like that, you know, getting yeah. ripped off with a penny. Yeah. That's always fun. That's pretty genius. <laughs> Josh gets free socks. There's a woman. I think her name is, her name is Rachel. Oh, fuck. Rachel, you have socks in the mail. If I owe anybody anything, please let me know. Also, if you want dopey gear, please buy some. It's at dopeypodcast.com. The new dopey Buddha shit is beautiful. It's beautiful. And there's all sorts of other dopey gear available from our friends at SRO Prints. Uh, at S- you know, they are a printing company out of Cincinnati, Ohio. They're junkies. Support them at SROprints.com. If you need printing done, if you want dopey gear, get it at dopeypodcast.com. If you want to, I mean, it's like summertime, but I still have big bird beanies. If you want a big bird beanie, Fucking, let's hook it up at uh, dopey at just me. Message me on Instagram. I'm distracted because Aaron's fucking taking pictures. The fuck are t- you doing? I'm doing a TikTok. What's the TikTok gonna be? You. Me advertising? No, I'm gonna put music over it. Buy dopey material. Um, all right. So Aaron, you thought this was a good one? Oh, I do. These selfies. It's man. not a selfie. You should I'm look trying at to her, do a TikTok. Look at her looking at herself in the mirror and <laughs> the and the, the phone. Anyway, thank you, Ask Aaron. Thank you, Clayton Patterson. Thank you, Josh. Uh, if you're relapsing, try to get your shit together. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and uh, fucking toodles for Chris. Toodles. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And I wanna take a ride up in the sky. Watch this aeroplane just pass me by. And I wanna see a Lear jetliner take a dive. Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller. And it's time to where I stand. Shadows getting smaller and smaller. And it's high noon where I stand. And I wonder would they pay it any mind when I leave this busted city far behind. I'll take the high road, however far it winds, because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find. And I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be good so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. Damn it, all these suckers make me mad. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And these suckers make me mad. And I wanna call my dad. And it's all I ever had. 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 And these suckers make me mad. And it's all I ever had. And I wanna call my dad. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had.